Hello and welcome to the 250, your weekly podcast look at the IMDb's top 250 movies of all time. I'm your host, Darren Mooney, and joining me as always is my co-host, Andrew Quinn. How are you, Andrew? I'm very good, thank you. I'm, um, I'm, uh, I'm very well. How are, how are, how are, how are, how are you, Darren? How, how, what, what is it like to be in, in, this, in this fine, wonderful world we live in? Yes, Halloween 2020. Who would have thought? How is it for you? <laughs> Halloween 2020 is fantastic. 2020 is the spookiest of years. It is. So um, I'm just imagining what kind of chaos will have unfolded between the gap in us recording this and the gap in us releasing this. There's so many Halloween things that won't happen. <laughs> Can you imagine uh, getting kids to bob for apples? Yeah, that's a, that's a nightmare waiting to happen this time around. Yeah, trick-or-treating even is probably out, to be fair, because that's just exposing yourself to well, random... At least they're wearing masks. <laughs> but not necessarily the ones that wear... It's like Batman masks, you know? Was it like Robert Pattinson? Uh, they had to shut down shooting on the Batman because Robert Pattinson caught COVID, because of course he did, because Batman's wearing the wrong type of mask. Um, but yes, so <laughs> it is Halloween, and we are here today. Uh, we're discussing one of the spooky movies on the 250. And joining us for this discussion, we have the wonderful Dr. Bernice Murphy, who joined us last week to talk about The Wicker Man. Hi, Bernice, how are you? I'm great. I mean, I can't believe since last week uh, we met the aliens landed and gave us a vaccine, and also climate change, a cure for that. Um, yeah. I mean, it's been a roller coaster, but I'm in much better form this week than I was last week, you know? Is anyone else suspicious of the aliens? <laughs> Careful, Andrew. No. Are you going to come I out as a secret alien anti-vaxxer? Man, it's really. Funny. I don't. Yeah, I don't believe in the alien. <laughs> it's all just a. It's all just a farce. Too much Very convenient. All these aliens. All the <laughs> and they're big supporters of Joe Biden, which what well, Ken was, you know, a surprise. <laughs> a weeks I mean, ago, people. A weeks ago, God knows what could happen. Oh, yeah, that's the real horror story waiting to happen. But let's just take your mind off that one uh, by focusing on something a bit closer to home. We also have the wonderful Phil Bagnell joining us. How are you, Phil? Uh, I'm not too bad. I'm only sorry that I couldn't join you for The Wicker Man because I was really looking forward to just going phallic symbol, phallic symbol over and over and over again. Twins everywhere. That was the bone of our discussion, so to speak. Uh, But yes, yes, it was. Uh, I can't wait to hear it. But um, I... This is thankfully we're discussing something a bit just a smidge better today. Yes. Oh, why? Why was I in on that chat? It must have been so much fun. But anyway. a quick one anyway before we start, because traditionally, you know, we've had conversations with Andrew before about the two fifty and about Halloween and about what constitutes is it a Halloween movie and how elastic Andrew's definition that can be. So I'm going to ask you to do the smell test on seven. First of all, I imagine Seven's a very smelly movie, but does it have a <laughs> Halloween scent to it? Does it? Is this? Would you consider this to be a horror movie, Andrew? And would you consider it a good Halloween well, watch? Yeah, in 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 the sense that you could maybe um, uh, maybe have a costume from the 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 movie, like um, you could be uh, gluttony or um, I already or, am. Or lust, or um, yeah. <laughs> lust or, requires uh, a bit more custom work, I think. It's more of a specialty. Lust requires kind of thing. a lot of um, kind of special effects makeup. Um, it's probably worth it. Um, yeah. So there, there is. Um, there well, is a Gwyneth lot of went as, for this. Gwyneth Paltrow went as Gwyneth Paltrow. Not to spoil a movie that's twenty five years old, but she had a very good Halloween costume of herself from the movie a couple of years ago oh, wow. as well that we will share in the show notes. Um, I mean, that, that sight gag nearly redeemed Goop. You know it, it for me. That was, I, that was such a good joke. I'm just amazed Gwyneth Paltrow was capable of a sense of humour. 
Um, but yes, so uh, to start us off there, Bernice, do you remember the first time that you saw Seven? I remember it very well. It was the summer of 1996 or 97, one of those. Um, no, um, I actually, I went to see it with my mother and my younger brother because, as I probably mentioned before, we are a family that goes to see horror films together. Uh, I think it came out when I was about 17 or 18. And we all absolutely loved it. I mean, it blew my mind. It was a big deal at the time, wasn't it? It was a lot of controversy about it. It was considered, I remember a lot of newspaper coverage where it was considered to be, was this the most disturbing serial killer film ever made? I'm doing inverted commas, that annoying thing that uh, lecturers do. Um, and yeah, I was so impressed by it and subsequently um, still think it holds up really well. With one exception, which is... Um, I find Brad Pitt's performance elements of it more and more annoying every time I watch this film. And it made me realize, though I don't like to say it, he wasn't a very good actor in the 90s. <laughs> Although, you know, he had other talents, um, you know, many other, but he he wasn't a great, necessarily always great at delivering lines. So, um, and I have one specific problem in a particular scene with his character that just, for me, was the end of my respect for that character. But I'll come to that later on. Okay, because I was going to ask, because we mentioned it last week. You mentioned, like, you imagine dropping Nicolas Cage from The Wicker Man onto the island from Wonder Woman and just watching that movie. I'm wondering yeah. if you were to drop Nicolas Cage into, like, the final 15 minutes of this movie and have Ooh, him do yeah. the big climactic moment in that kind of, like, Brad Pitt line delivery. Like, yeah, what, Nicolas he, Cage. you could swap him in for what's in the box easily. Yeah, yeah. You know? Um, the box yeah, it's such a box? wine like a petulant wine yeah uh, <laughs> like he's asking for a cookie it's like he like it's like he really wants a cookie and uh, what about yourself Phil? uh let me think um i would have seen it when i was in my late teens i i don't remember what age exactly but i remember the experience of it because i remember i taped it off tv and this was this must have been like a decade after it was released and it was still had kind of that air about it of something very forbidden and very dark and very dangerous and I remember I taped it and played it back the next day and it's much like Bernice my mind was blown I couldn't believe that I couldn't believe what I was watching basically but this was around the time when my cine literacy would not have been as strong as it is now but it um I was just astonished by how, besides just the the sheer violence of its um of its concept, just how it was made and how it was put together. How do you make something that just look that dark? How do you make it sound so off putting? Um, it is an an astonishingly well made movie, which figures. I mean, it's David Fincher, and he's just gone on to prove himself again and again. Um, so just from then on, I've been a massive, massive fan of Seven and it's, I've always recommended to people, even people I know who probably would be better off not watching it, but that's just the kind of sick guy that I am. It's it's kind of an interesting film to talk about because it's almost a fusion of the two movies we've had Bernice on to talk about recently. So Signs of the Lambs two years ago. And kind of The Exorcist uh, recently as well. Mm. I think Fincher cited The Exorcist as an influence in terms of the look, feel and sound of the movie in particular. Um, you can see that, all right. And yep. it's kind of like in terms of 90s cinema as well, Seven is perhaps the only um, like post Signs of the Lambs kind of like 90s serial killer movie that is really considered a genuine classic in its own right. I mean, there are lots of that genre of movie that people like, Single White Female, for example, or kind of, you know, mm. even Kiss the Girls with Morgan Freeman later on. Um, but there are 
or even copycat. You know, there are lots of like people have lots of little cult favorites in the genre, but it feels like Seven is the only other big 90s serial killer movie to really kind of make an impression culturally. Uh, it's it's an interesting one. I, after Silence of the Lambs and the humongous success that had both critically and commercially, like we got such a glut of serial killer thrillers. You know, you mentioned a few of them there, copycat, um, basically most of Morgan's late 90s, Morgan Freeman's late 90s career. Um, and you have things like Single White Female and, you know, so many others. Um, but I think this just has the smarts and the look to stand out from all of them. Because a lot of them, you can read things into them, but by and large, they're fairly schlocky. And some of them, some of them are pretty terrible. Oh, I just remembered Sliver. Does anyone remember Sliver? Oh, horrible. Sliver, horrible. hold on. Based on a book by Ira Lapp, it was once baby. <laughs> Sorry, Andrew? Is what that the erotic thriller with um, Sharon Bad Stone Billy Baldwin. One, well, yeah. one of the bad Which, Baldwins. Yeah, bad Billy Baldwin. <laughs> <laughs> it's all Mr. Burns oh. got that delightful idea from. Um, what was his quoting? Uh, yes, I got the idea from that movie Sliver. Something like that. What a delightful romp. Uh, erotic thrillers anymore, though. Uh, well, okay, this is going to turn into a separate discussion, but the the erotic yeah, thriller sorry, is having. We've been over this before. It's kind of <laughs> like the the um, just just because when I was eleven, <laughs> they were the best thing in the world and like sent from God. Um, <laughs> doesn't, doesn't mean that they're very important part of that. Andrew's Andrew's yeah, yeah. development. I love that Seven was important for Phil, but like basic kids, instinct. Kids these days have their own ways of getting through this. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but no, I mean, it, it is worth noting that the, the the erotic thriller has had something of a light resurgence recently. I think there was the uh, the movie starring Alicia Vikander that was on uh, Netflix, um, which was itself set in like 1989 Japan for that kind of like so it really earthquake felt like bird a, earthquake bird. So it felt it's like an erotic thriller in like 80s Japan. So it's pretty much like the perfect nostalgia fest for people who grew up with movies of a certain kind or a certain era because it's a really tacky mm. erotic thriller that is also vaguely ominously terrified of these people who live on the opposite side of the planet and maybe an economic powerhouse so yeah andrew i would recommend earthquake bird if you are feeling um that you need that kind of yeah i wasn't even going to ask if it were any good no it's not (laughs) it is not you just just heard the words (laughs) issue for candor and erotic thriller didn't you it is is not any good at all yeah i'm 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 sorry you got me yeah and meanwhile bernice is listening to us going boys I was going to build into a question there to, to Bernice, actually, because I know you've written a great deal about the American Gothic and the American rural Gothic. I think you've written about the American urban Gothic as well. Yep. In terms of like Seven as kind of a centerpiece of 90s American cinema or like, would you consider it a horror movie? And, and how important would you consider it to be in the evolution or kind of like the this stage of horror cinema? Um, Big time. I, I think it absolutely qualifies as a horror film in the same way that the, that unlike a lot of the other films that yourself and Andrew quite rightly mentioned that were part of this. <laughs> I think your word glut, Andrew, or sorry, Andrew, um, Phil, Jesus. Uh, sorry, uh, Phil, you've used the word glut there, which I think was very, very appropriate. Um, most of them weren't horror films. They were like, they were not very good police procedurals, thrillers. But this, like, it, it hasn't, I think the atmosphere here just saturated with dread. Um, there's a kind of a liminality about it from the start where we never find out what, what what city it is. It seems to be a bit like Chicago in some ways, but also it's kind of like a bit like LA when they get out into the deserts. It's got all of these 
allegorical qualities to it, which the film itself is always pointing out in a very, aha, I was very clever there. Did you see that, Did you see that reference? It does a lot of that, which I like as a pretentious person, um, particularly at, at a younger age, uh, when you know, I still had to grow into it properly. Um, this movie has read books. I like books. Therefore, this yeah. movie is great. Yeah. <laughs> I, I will admit the, the bit where the, the um, Brad Pitt character um, gets one of his colleagues to get yes. him the cliff notes. <laughs> tales. I did that as, a, as an undergrad, so um, I'm not one to judge. And, that, and now I have an image of you sitting in a car going, stupid Dante. Goddamn poetry, poetry writing. writing. Piece of <laughs> yeah. just, as, just as well, I specialize in popular fiction. But um, sorry to, <laughs> to return to your question, no, I think it is, it's a classic of what I would call, um, or, or, or what other people would call as well, the urban Gothic. Um, a sense that the modern cityscape is inherently dystopian, um, that it's, it, it is kind of a hell in and of itself. Um, that it can't be escaped uh, and um, that there's a kind I mean there's a few films that came out a little bit like this people might remember a really great film called Dark City was that was it called yes. Alexis Marvelous Freud thing. which Marvelous always reminds me slightly of Seven yeah. mm. and I, I think in a strange way this film always reminds me as well of um, uh, Nolan's uh, The Dark Knight uh, Rises uh, which is done with the Joker sorry I've repressed Dark, the Dark Knight, Knight. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Darren, Darren is internalising his rage right but, now um, he, he always reminds me his vision of the city is quite like um, Nolan's vision of Gotham particularly in the second film where the Joker is this symbol of absolute um, anarchy and then you have John Doe who in his own way is trying to bring, bring what he sees as order to the city and I think they're very similar characters actually maybe talk about it a bit later on but there's some fascinating parallels there and I do wonder if Nolan in his version of the Joker was maybe picking up a bit on um, you know fair play to him Kevin Spacey has had uh, uh, one might say a, a very uh, convincing creep Kevin yeah, Spacey plays a, a very maybe phrase it like that, yes. Um, but he's re- he's really good in this film. Yeah. Um, so no, I think it is an absolutely a horror classic, justifiably so. And I just think it's it's wonderful, albeit tremendously disturbing and depressing. And actually, it is worth noting at this point um, that the Batman, which won't be released for a couple of months, the first trailer was revealed, and it is very much like Seven, but with Robert Pattinson in a bat suit in it. Um, so yes, that that influence is definitely there, um, which is not necessarily what anybody wanted, I think, but it's apparently what we're getting. Um, but yeah, it's so gonna be really dark, and that Eggman is going to be like the, the Vincent main Price, thing. yeah, the Vincent Price yeah. character. Um, <laughs> it's he's a mad yoke, so he is. All right then. Um, but it, yeah, so uh, it is It is worth noting again. And it's worth noting that this was the movie that revived David Fincher's career. We've talked on the podcast before. We have a lot of directors who kind of swear off their first films. Uh, Fincher generally considers this to be his first film. And Fincher fans consider this to be his first proper film. Because obviously the film he made before this was Alien 3. Which was yeah. famously went through a very, very, very troubled production for everybody involved. And nearly scared Fincher off filmmaking. It was only when this script kind of came across his lap. And we'll maybe talk about you know the details of how it came across how it came to fincher and how fincher came to it and how the movie came together kind of in the spoiler zone but it's one of those movies that really seems very kind of fortuitous that it arrived at the perfect time in virtually everybody in its careers in terms of like morgan freeman like generate basically as as phil mentioned turning this character into his defining character that he would play iterations of for another decade afterwards brad pitt kind of like using this as a springboard 
like getting away from I'm incredibly handsome and jumping towards movies like Fight Club, for example. Fincher using it to say, oh, look, actually, I'm a really, really good director with a strong stylistic sensibility and a very strong, you know, kind of sense of something to say about the world. And even like the writer, you know, the writer himself was it Andrew Troy, Andrew Keller um, or Andrew Walker, sorry, um, using it basically to kind of as a kind of a calling card in Hollywood and kind of generating a wave of kind of sequels and follow ups that kind of are very similar in ways. I think after this, he went on to do eight millimeter a Nicolas Cage movie uh, to tie it all back together, uh, which is somehow because <laughs> everything has to be connected. This was his calling card. And does it say like there will be six more after this? <laughs> <laughs> like Quentin Tarantino. <laughs> David, David Finch. <laughs> Gets to the bottom of the script and finds, you know, long is the road and hard is the way that leads uh, um, to, to a sequel or franchise option on this. But yeah, no, no, it is, it's a striking film. It seemed to arrive at exactly the right time. All right, then, before we jump into the spoiler zone, three questions to get us started. So we'll go with Phil first this time. Phil, mm. do you think that Seven belongs on a list of the 250 greatest movies ever made? Yes, Absolutely. Um, the Fincher is one director who seems to be overrepresented on the list. And is he ironically, also, he only has three. Uh, three. Is, I, he's had more. He's over the course of time. He's had like he's had ten movies in total, but they tend to come in and they tend to drop out. Um, mm. So, for Zodiac example, would have come so the, in, yeah. Social Network came in. The Curious Case of Benjamin Button came in and dropped out. The Game was in and dropped out. Um, yeah, the the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo came in and dropped out. And so as yeah, you see, some some of his best work isn't in there. Uh, I think so. Correct me if I'm wrong, but what's left on the list of his is Seven, Fight Club, and Gone Girl. Yeah, if I had to pick one, it's Seven without question. And I like Fight Club and I like Gone Girl, but Seven is just a, a director with nothing to lose, a game cast, everything in his place. I, yeah, it belongs on the list. And uh, to me, it's Fincher's best film. Um, and how would it rank in terms of like '90s cinema? If it's Fincher's best film, and if it certainly belongs a place on the list, like would this be one of your favorite movies of the '90s? Absolutely, it mm. is. Um, I, I, it's funny enough, in all our time, we've known each other, Darren, this is one film that, of all the films we've discussed, it hasn't come up very often, but I I adore Seven. I love it, love it, love it. And Would I you go so far as to say that you're in Seventh Heaven? Hey-o. Oh. And that took, we're nearly 20, no, we're, we're nearly 20 minutes in. What took you so long? Um, it's maybe not a film that, let, actually, it's yeah. a very funny film, which we'll talk about in, in the spoiler zone. The Darren, he made a penis pun <laughs> earlier on. Um, I, I did, and nobody got it. I was very proud of myself for that. Um, but anyway, so, Bernice, what about yourself? Um, do, you, do you think that Seven belongs on the list of the 250 greatest movies ever made? Yeah, I would absolutely support everything Phil has just said. I think it's a masterpiece. For me, it wouldn't be my favourite Fincher film. Um, I think what I find really interesting is that he's come back repeatedly in his career to the idea of the serial killer, um, not just in Zodiac, obviously. To a certain extent, arguably maybe in Gone Girl a little bit with yeah. the idea of the psychopath. But also in Mindhunter, which if you if you watch the TV series Mindhunter, which was taken from us too soon, damn you Netflix! But also thank you for making it. Um, there's so much crossover, so I find it fascinating that it's almost as if there's something about this kind of pathology that he, to use the language of the film pathology um, that he can't shake himself. That's really interesting, um, and I, I love it. I actually I teach this film. I've got a course called Landscapes of Fear, which I do in that kind of voice the whole way through, and um, <laughs> it's it's <laughs> we have that on, and it's actually a really interesting film to teach to students. Um, 
who've maybe never seen it before and most of them wouldn't have um and it always goes down really well and is is a, there's so much to unpack there it's just a fantastic film yeah so completely in agreement there yeah i think it's great if you you back me up on this bernice but if you ever want a great movie watching experience watch seven with anyone who's never seen it before the you'll be watching watching people for certain points it's oh it's so much fun <laughs> I'm a sadist, assuming. Very quickly there, Bernice, you mentioned that it wouldn't be your favourite Fincher film. What would be your yeah. favourite Fincher film? And I should say, I mean, it's uh, I, I'm a big fan of Fincher, so pretty much all of us... I've never, I didn't really warm to the social network, but everything else I really like. Um, but the social network is so lovable. It's populated by characters <laughs> who are very easy to get along with and very charming and engaging. <laughs> I mean, I even I really liked Panic Room. I think as a I think as yeah. a exercise in Chicago and suspense, it's superb. Uh, my favorite is Gone Girl. I just thought Gone, I, I really liked the book, and I just thought it was such an intelligent kind of slyly funny adaptation. Um, but I think his best film is Zodiac. I mean, I think, oh. I, but I don't love Zodiac, and I love both Seven and Gone Girl. So that's a very mixed answer there. Uh, Zodiac's a film I admire, but um, I don't love it. But I think tech is just I think it's just superb. And and Andrew, what about yourself? Do you think that Seven belongs on the list of the 250 greatest movies ever made? I think so. Yes. Yeah. I I I I I think I might prefer um, Fight Club and maybe Gone Girl to it if I were kind of ranking it with with Fincher movies. But it would be difficult because I I was kind of watching this and I think because of how much of a kind of an impact it had on me. To, I, I don't know if I've if I've seen it more than once before this, but it, it felt so familiar yeah. because of kind of how um, much it kind of stays with you, and all, and also perhaps how much cinema is kind of how much like genre has kind of drawn from it. Like you had like on Fox the year afterwards, you had the TV show Millennium, which is basically seven, but for an hour every week uh, for yeah. half a year for three seasons. And I <laughs> love Millennium. Facing but... rain like for half a year. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, it was shot in Vancouver. So of course it was. Okay, um, yeah. and, like, and set yeah. mostly in Seattle. So yes, it mostly I, was. Yeah. I feel like there's a good argument for this movie being set in Seattle. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> where, where everybody's <laughs> like, where everybody is like, why did you move here? Yeah. <laughs> like, what is wrong with you? Um, it does feel like the kind of city that could produce Nirvana, to be fair. Yeah. Yeah. They, <laughs> they, I, but they, they, it was funny, though, because it didn't really, um, it didn't strike me that much watching it. And I was thinking, yeah, it's good. But actually, at the end of the movie, it really got me. I, like, I was in tears. Um watching it so yeah yeah no i i um it's um it's very um it's very impactful and, and it's got already emery yes uh, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah and so shaft and richard roundtree what is your major malfunction john doe <laughs> my favorite I, I, one of my I, favorite I, moments it is this ain't even my desk yeah, <laughs> i love that line like, like we're gonna talk about how yeah. dark and how serious and how depressing and how oppressive seven is and it absolutely is but it's also incredibly funny like i re-watching it for the podcast i had forgotten how like funny the movie is how much of a sense of humor it has despite that like oppressive darkness which i think makes it work to the extent that it does um, Can I ask you a quick 1990s uh, TV question, Darren? Because I know this is very oh, much oh, your, okay. your your milieu. I never know how to pronounce that. Um, is the, <laughs> It struck me watching this. Um, there's all these scenes where they enter crime scenes, but they don't switch on the bloody lights and torches slowly pan across, you know. And I, I was thinking X-Files 
when they were when you know when they're putting the book together for the X Files, they were clearly going seven. So uh, I, I can you confirm is the X Files slightly after or is it? No, the, the, the X Files would have been before. The X Files would have been oh. just about before by a year and a half. Now, what's That's notable? That theory shocked that they didn't have any light bulbs in the nineties. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there was a massive light bulb shortage. Well, I mean, to be fair, one of the things about the X Files, uh, fun because we're talking about flash bulbs, and I love flash bulb facts, is that on the <laughs> first season, the X Files, the budget on the X Files wouldn't stretch to actual good torches. So they had like worksmen's torches, like with proper handles on them that you had to hold. Uh, in order to like light the sets. So when Mulder and Scully would walk into sets in the first season, they'd have basically like mini projectors that they'd have to carry by a handle. And then as the budget increased, the torches got stronger and kind of cooler and the suits started fitting better, which I quite like as well. But it was more, it was definitely <laughs> Millennium was definitely influenced by this. And in fact, actually, there's an episode of the third season, The X-Files called Grotesque, where Mulder gets into the mind of a serial killer, but he goes to a library, reads a book on medieval torture and listens to classical music. And you're yeah. like, I know what everybody in the X-Files writing room was watching this summer. Um, <laughs> but yeah, um, but it, it is it is absolutely massively influential. Um, although I think the X-Files got in just under the wire in terms of that influence. Uh, but Millennium, very, very, very definitely. Uh, I think a, a, a dissertation, a master's level dissertation on torches and, you know, late 90s pop culture. That's that's for, that's for waiting there for you to write, Darren. I, I wouldn't put it past him. <laughs> yeah, the evolution of torches and what what do torches torches shine a light on our very soul i think <laughs> don't know whether that's the opening line or the closing line but i think we've got it there and then uh for myself this is interesting i'm not entirely sure i would put this on like a list of the 250 greatest movies ever i love it i think it's fantastic i think it's an amazing piece of form i'm not sure it's fincher's best movie um i think it's probably one of fincher's movies i most enjoy and it's the one that i think of most often but it's probably not when i think of fincher i think of something like you know the social network or i think of something like zodiac or i think of something like fight club for example um and seven you know i think there's a lot going on there i think like and again we're, we're on a podcast with somebody who literally teaches seven so i there is a lot going on there and a lot to discuss but i think if I were to pick a Fincher film or a couple of Fincher films to put on the list, Seven would maybe not be in the top three or four of them, perhaps. Um, but I, I definitely think it's great that it's there. I loved watching it. And it's amazing that it's actually one of the rare movies that has climbed. Uh, most of the movies on the on the 250 tend to trend downwards. Over the past 25 years, this movie has climbed upwards uh, from a low of 130 in August 1999 to currently sitting where it is, which is 20. And its highest ever rank was 18. So it hasn't, like, it's pretty consistently high up there in terms of like the 250s rankings and then second question phil um would it be on your own personal 250 it most certainly would um you're saying about how you're not sure you don't think it, you'd put it on a list of the greatest 250 movies of all time um like the reason that i would say over any other fincher films is because despite its darkness it's one of fincher's this will sound very odd, I know, but it's one of his warmest films. I find myself really drawn to the characters in it and their situations, more so than in Fight Club, which is very intensely cerebral. But, you know, I just I don't find myself drawn to, uh, I don't know, I am Jack's failure to explain himself. Um, but I, I, I've also kind of had the same problem with Girl with Dragon Tattoo Um I love Zodiac, but it is just a little cold to the touch. That'd be about my only complaint with it. Even um, even Gone Girl, which is arguably his most wildly entertaining film, but I mean, it's like my 
my I remember thinking my primary uh, uh, I think the primary lesson to take away from Gone Girl is that love is a many splendored thing, mostly espoused by uh, Ben Affleck whispering in his wife's ear, "You." <laughs> Um, so I, I don't know. It it tur- like Fincher is somebody who keep I think often willfully keeps his viewers at a distance. Yeah, uh, at least. Uh, what through the use of Steadicam, uh, the use of framing, he's not yeah. very fond of close-ups, for example. Yeah. The way that he's so perhaps exactly. So perhaps this way, and Seven is very early on in his career. So perhaps without that self that level of self-awareness, I think it's a film that for all its darkness is it's one that draws you in um i think the cast have a lot to do with that but overall i just think that seven i i'm not surprised it's climbed up the list because uh, i think it's something that once it gets in people's minds it lingers there because it just haunts and horrifies them so effectively but also because it leaves what becomes of the characters and what happens to the story in the end. You're not going to, you just don't forget it. It is literally unforgettable. Yeah, it's, it's worth like, no matter what you think of it, you're not going to, you just can't let it go. In terms of that intimacy that you mentioned, it's worth noting that um, this is the Fincher movie with the most handheld camera footage in it. Um, there are no fewer it's than about five shots. That's it. Five, five sequences. I believe that use handheld yeah. footage uh, in it, which is uh, very much, Against kind of the way that Fincher tends to shoot, he tends to prefer kind of like dolly. You're, lu- you're lucky if you find, yeah, you're, you're generally lucky if you find one handheld shot in most of his films. I don't think Panic Room has any. Panic Room uh, does, I think, have one single shot, and you would blink. And that's you miss it. it. Yeah, I, I think Social Network has one as well, and Zodiac. He is, you know, just a director who, make, for whom everything is precise. The camera is always on a tripod. It's, which I mean, you, uh, I can't. I can't fault the precision and his dedication to a very precise vision, but yeah, very clean. Which which is ironic for the world that it depicts. <laughs> yeah, yes. Yeah. No. There. Th- I think, ironically enough, the messiness of Seven is what uh, keeps it in people's minds. Um, and Bernice, what about yourself? Would this be um, on your own personal 250, your own 250 favourite movie? It would be. And and I think part of the reason why that's sort of underlined for me, just watching it again for you guys this, this week, because I do like to watch films before I talk about them. I find it professional. Um, <laughs> no, but um, uh, is it's one of the film, it's a, it's a film that I teach relatively regularly. And this is going to sound very first world problems. But in my job, you have to on a very short deadline, watch films and read books when you don't necessarily, you know, you're not necessarily in the form for them, but you need to watch something or read something for because you're teaching it the next week or the next day, um, which is a very different mindset from you choosing to watch something for pleasure. And this is one of those films that um, no matter what are, what the circumstances are where I have to watch it again, I'm always really absorbed back into it. And I, I'm always just enjoying it's this, as if I'm seeing the film again for the first time. And I'm really uh, enjoying is a weird word, word to say about Seven. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's it's a warm movie. It's a funny movie. I love the idea that like listeners who haven't seen Seven. Yeah, I love that listeners. It's a buddy cop comedy of the, of the, of the decade. Uh, yeah. It's a love story, you know. Listeners who haven't seen Seven are probably getting a very strange idea of it from the way that we're pitching. It's like, <laughs> people always tell me it's so dark and moody and depressing. It's like, no, it's hilarious. It's warm. It's kind of very affectionate. 
Let me put it place with dogs. I mean, it's got everything. But no, absolutely, it definitely goes in that in my personal two fifty. I think it's, I think it's a really wonderful film, as I've said already, and it holds up so well. I think certain bits of it, perhaps to a contemporary audience, it's a bit like we talked about this. I think with the Sands of the Lambs, where it was so influential that as a consequence, so many other things ripped it off. That I, I have this conversation with my students where I say to them, some of these things may seem really old hat to you. Um, you, you know, the, the killer that quotes, you know, from Dante or whatever. Yeah. A lot of that Sands of the Lambs as well. But, you know, it's serial killing with a side order of pretension. But it was doing something atmospherically as well. I think that was really quite unique. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's just, it's, it's wonderful. And Andrew, what about yourself? Would this be on your own personal 250? Yeah, and it's, it has a lot of the kind of um, the hallmarks that, that we, that, of, of, of the 250 um, that, that we talk about, like there's a lot of food waste. <laughs> yeah, quite, quite a bit. Um, um, there's, and, and, and I love it as well because um, of uh, Rob Bottoms. Um, oh, in, special effect work, yeah. In the, that RoboCop special reference. makeup effects, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Um, no, I, 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 I like this an awful lot. I don't, I don't generally like, um, kind of culture that's overly, um, dark or dark cynical or popular or terrible a, people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In, 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 but I, I think that this, this movie is quite kind of, um, uh, saved because like, like, I, 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 I believe in the, in the goodness. Of, 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 of the people really. easy there Hemingway um. yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's the, the, what, is, what did he say I, get, I suppose it, it doesn't really spoil the movie to, to, to offer um, that quote um, the world is a good place and worth fighting for I believe in the second part argue with the second part yeah. Um, yeah. Well, that was actually added in post but we'll, we'll probably talk a bit about the ending kind of later on um, I do you think I'm, what I do, yeah, maybe perhaps one of those things that uh, kind of like the legacy of it. I think what's interesting, I was, I was actually thinking about this when, when we were talking about it, was that like we've, one of the recurring motifs over the season of Scorsese that we've been doing is like Andrew talking about how, you know, how much it kind of wears you down to watch movies about people who are depressed and dark and worlds that seem to be cynical. It doesn't and, really have that yeah. effect. So <laughs> that's even, what I was wondering. Even yeah. though I found it very upsetting, like I, yeah. I cried. And I, I cried because... I felt for the people um, in 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 the movie. I I I I felt for David Mills. I felt for William Somerset. Um, you know, I I I I believed in in them. You know, this is strangely. This is strangely heartwarming, I must say. I've never heard of anybody crying at seven with an emotion other than fear. I'm oh Andrew. You, you old honey dripper. And, and, and uh, like having 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 watched so much Scorsese, there's, there's very few <laughs> so people in the Scorsese <laughs> movies that I really care about. Like and and they, they like tend to die really brutally. Yeah. So it it would it would be it would be very affecting if you cared about those people. But yeah, it, it's affecting in a kind of a disgust way, but not in a oh no um, sort of a way. Yeah. I kind of love that like seven is like a reprieve for you. Seven is like light and kind of like fluffy and kind of, not light and fluffy, but it's like a, a warm film by comparison to what we've been talking Ex- about. Except for Mari, obviously, and Goodfellas. 
yeah, he, did. <laughs> he was an angel. He didn't deserve anything. Um, yeah, what I would yeah. say is, I for me, yes, this is probably in my top 250. I adore this movie. Um, I can remember almost shot for shot, scene from scene, this movie. I think it's amazing. I think it's fantastic. Um, and it's just a, it's weird to call it a joy, but it is what Bernice mentioned. It's a film that is never work to watch. You stick it on and you get kind of absorbed into it. It's like, I think when we talked about Goodfellas, we had people talking about like how when Goodfellas is on, you can't turn it off. You just have to sit down and watch it and be absorbed by it. And Seven is kind of like that for me in that it's it's that weird paradox that we mentioned where Fincher is at once this kind of like really striking visual eye and a very kind of beautiful craftsman. And the world itself is so rotten and disgusting and seems like it's smelly and sticky and like not a place where you would actually want to be. But somehow through the eye of Fincher's camera, it it becomes kind of absorbing to kind of to be lost in it, but know that you're not a part of it, which I think is kind of like maybe one of the strengths of Fincher as a director. Because we talked about how cold he is and how distant he is and his use of Steadicam and the fact that most of his camera movements don't seem to be like motivated by a director. They seem to almost be guided like a, you know, it's hard to tell when you're watching a Fincher movie whether the, the camera is being operated by a person or by a program machine. And that kind of gives you, I think, makes the darkness of the movie more bearable to a certain extent. It makes a movie that would otherwise be kind of suffocating or overwhelming something that is actually engaging to watch and something I can watch and can watch repeatedly. So yeah, this would definitely be in my, my top 250. Um, and then final question, Phil, if listeners have not watched Seven, if they haven't seen it yet, would you recommend that they, and keep in mind that it would have celebrated its 25th anniversary back in September, would you recommend that they pause the podcast, watch the movie, and then come back and join us in the spoiler zone? Well, it depends what people are looking for, really, doesn't it? I mean, we've talked about how warm it is, how life-affirming it can be. I'm going to take this opportunity to tell a story uh, that Fincher tells. He says that he was at the first screening at New York with the original ending, and he's there with New Line head, uh, Mike head of New Line. Uh, no, Bob Shea. Ah. But uh, they're standing at the door, and it's the original ending with just a cut to black, and the lights come up, and yeah. he describes three middle-aged women dressed like grade school teachers. And these are people who would have been recruited uh, to see a film starring Legends of the Falls, Brad Pitt and Driving with Daisy's Morgan Freeman. And as they're walking by the door, Fincher overhears them say, the people who made that movie should be killed. And that's, when he, and that's when he thought, yes! That's... <laughs> So, if that's what you're after, folks, yes, watch Seven immediately. It's like the sort of thing that um, that John Doe might overhear. That he'd fun with him. Yeah. Attended a test screening on Wednesday night. Uh, before the movie was over, I realized I had vomited all over the print. Um, but yes, so Bernice, would you recommend that people watch the Yes, movie? And, and well, on a vomitous note, I would recommend it. With one important caveat, which is I sat down to watch this film, and I've seen Seven about 20 times in my life, I would imagine. Uh, and I started to watch it while eating my dinner. Ah. Um, and then about five minutes in, I thought, oh, hang on, isn't this the gluttony? Yes, it opens with gluttony. And, you know, I, I must admit I did pause whilst I finished my repast. Um, so I would say it's a film that you probably shouldn't watch whilst eating a large dinner, particularly if it's pasta. Ah. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a movie that if you saw it in the street, you would pause it and point it out to your friends so you could laugh and at it laugh. and discuss. <laughs> yeah, it's a movie that if you were eating a meal, you wouldn't be able to finish it watching this movie is what it is. <laughs> We're quoting from it a lot already. That's a good sign. <laughs> 
And, and Andrew, what about yourself? Would you recommend that if people have not seen Seven, that they watch Seven? Yeah, but like, be careful. Yeah. The, 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 like, maybe don't eat it while don't, don't watch it while eating. Um, probably don't also eat a large meal while recording a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if the listeners can pick up on that, but um, um, yeah, no, I'd 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 recommend it, especially if you like Fincher movies. Um, and um, and you haven't seen this, which I can imagine, I I, I can imagine people might have, um, or even for people who have seen. Well, because it's, it's like an early film. one, so to speak. Like it's twenty five years old. Again, not to keep mentioning that, but like it is an old movie now. It is a movie oh. I would have difficulty convincing my younger sister to watch. I feel so elderly. Twenty five years. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> oh. I mean, she was very proud. She texted me during the week and she was like, I want you to know I watched a classic movie. I'm not just, you know, I want you to know I'm not just watching modern movies. I watched The Truman Show. It was fantastic. <laughs> oh, come on! It's like this really great old movie. I really liked it. Uh-huh. I was going to say, the things they play on the gold, um, golden hour, like on, on radio now. It's like, oh, I remember this song. I danced the song so many times. But you know what? Fair play, fair play to your sister because I mean, I've occasionally mentioned films like my go-to example is: Has anyone seen the original RoboCop? I don't know what I was teaching. You know, it could have been the Scarlet Letter. I just brought up RoboCop, and nobody in the room had seen RoboCop. What? And I had a what? moment. Of, I had a moment of good God, what what you know? And I had a, a real moment of personal reckoning. You know, what what a world we live in where all these young people haven't seen RoboCop. And then I realized, you know, in the if you were a child of the 80s or the 90s. Uh, there was no internet. You didn't have a constant stream of your own curated, um, you know, uh, films and, and TV shows and podcasts. You could pick yourself. And you were pretty much forced to watch whatever was on TV at the time. And you were, as a result, exposed to a lot of stuff from earlier decades that you wouldn't have been exposed to otherwise. So I think sometimes it can be a little bit of kind of, you know, like kids today, you know, they yeah. don't watch anything before 2018. And I think to a certain extent that can occasionally be, uh, there can be an element of truth in that, but I think there's very sound reasons for that, which is Absolutely. there's such a wealth of new content getting made. And also, uh, arguably, TV, th- television does not show, most TV yeah. channels do not show old films anymore. I mean, and I would say old be from before 10 years ago. So, sorry, uh, I'm just defending. No, no, students. absolutely. I, I, I didn't want. I, I was not picking on my sister there. To be absolutely <laughs> clear, I was not. Yeah, no, I, I'm just applauding her. You know, I think yeah. she's fair play to her. I was not using the medium of podcasting for sibling bullying. To be absolutely clear, um, I think this also is a good is a good sign for the two fifty as a podcast. Like we're we're performing a public service here. We're introducing awareness. potentially introducing people to these films. We're spreading their awareness. Come on, kids, watch Seven. All fun for all the family. <laughs> the problem as well, though, because part of the reason why kids these days don't have uh, time to watch these movies is because they're listening <laughs> to these really long podcasts. Uh, <laughs> we're not in the spoiler zone yet, and we're oh, three quarters of an hour in. It's oh, going well. okay, okay, all right then. I would also recommend that you watch it. Uh, just again, if be mindful of the fact it can be a heavy film at times. That is all that I will say on that. And on that, I will take us neatly into the spoiler zone.
Take it down. So, Bernice, what is Seven about for you? Oh, um, I, I think it's quite similar to The Exorcist in that there's a line in the in the novel, I can't remember if it's in the film, where Detective Kinderman says, you know, the world has had a, a, ner- a collective nervous breakdown. And I think Seven depicts presents us with a world that has essentially had a, a nervous, colossal nervous breakdown. Um, and it is, and it's almost like a kind of a hell in itself. And there are pockets of friendship and, and intimacy and love. But there's also a sense that even above and beyond John Dove's activities, this is a place that has gone very, very badly wrong. And it's only hope maybe people like Somerset and Mills that are willing, particularly Somerset, who's willing to kind of fight the good fight. Um, you know, in the inserted <laughs> slightly more hopeful. Can we call it hopeful? I don't think anything about this film is hopeful. But no, I think it is. It's it's it is a film about this sense of just profound malaise and and that modernity is itself is is sort of poisonous and toxic. And even the good people who move there from the small town, they're inevitably going to be chewed up and spat out by this. They're 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 terribly prepared for what they're going to find. Um, so yeah, I think it is. I think in its own way a a tremendously pessimistic film in a way that I quite admire. Um, uh, it is worth noting in that that like the writer Andrew Kevin Walker uh, based it on his experiences. He grew up in Pennsylvania, but he moved to New York City, um, and he lived there between 1986 and 1991. Mm. And apparently, um, that was so he talked about stuff like the crack cocaine epidemic was being on the rise, the fact that you couldn't go to Times Square, for example. Um, and he says the best thing about New York City, or the best thing about living in New York City, was that if he hadn't lived there, he wouldn't have written Seven. That was literally the only good memory that he had of, or association with it was that his terrible experience there was able to be transformed into a film. But yeah, it is, it's it's very much one of those kind of like American Anome kind of films. It feels almost like a successor to something like Taxi Driver, mm. where it's a sense of like you're living in this vast anonymous city. And you're right, it is. It was shot in Los Angeles and there are a couple of scenes where it's not disguised particularly well. So I think the sequence where like John Doe is chased across the rooftops, you see Somerset coming out of like a recognizable L.A. landmark. But and the fact that the desert obviously at the climax, but like generally speaking, the fact that it's raining, uh, you know, is, is enough that it doesn't look like L.A. because L.A. you don't associate with rain in film. So kind of it- except for maybe one shot where Mills is crossing the street in the rain, except in the background, you can see the sun is blazing on the buildings behind him. But yeah, by and large, it does a pretty good job of just being an American city. I mean, there's there's shots of architecture that looks more like Chicago, like Bertie said, the Chicago of uh, that, that Nolan uses in The Dark Knight. But yeah, I mean, it, it stinks of New York, especially that late 80s New York that uh, Walker uh, was inspired by to write the script. He, he, he described that working in tower records at the time and just being profoundly miserable he had a side job as like a, a writer and production assistant in a schlock uh, b movie company and that was actually where he got the the gem of the idea to write the script as uh, just coming up with ideas for these b movies and one of them was this interesting hook of the seven deadly sins so so it's an interesting genesis, but like you say, it, only for he went there would he have written it in the first place. Yeah, and I mean, again, it's, it's worth noting in terms of its development as well, and which I kind of I kind of love is the fact that this was almost a very different movie. Um, <laughs> when when he submitted the script, they bought the script um, and they optioned the script, and that gave him you know gave him enough money that he could move to Los Angeles. But it was originally optioned for director Jeremiah Chichik. Who of the Avengers fame! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as listeners oh. may or may not know, was the director of Christmas Vacation, 
Um, and apparently, like, he wanted to change it and obviously change the ending, which we'll talk about in a moment, and turn it into a much more conventional, much more traditional sort of film because he wanted kind of a palate cleanser and not too dark. And apparently, <laughs> um, Walker agreed to do this because he needed the job and he needed the money, he needed to stay in the business. But what happened is eventually that project fell apart. And by sheer coincidence, Fincher ended up with a copy of the original draft of the script, the one that had been unchanged by Hollywood, the one that hadn't had the ending revised to make it a happy ending, for example. And Fincher saw this, read it, and was like, I want to make this movie. The company said, New Line Cinema said, oh, wait, we actually sent you the wrong script. Uh, we'll send you a replacement. Fincher read the replacement was like, no, 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 I want to do the original script as well. And apparently a big part of why the movie turned out the way that it was was because so many people who ended up with that copy of the original script insisted on filming it rather than changing it. Um, so, including including Brad Pitt, who had yes. it in his contract that they had to shoot that ending. Yes. Brad Pitt, Brad Pitt basically, he had a bad experience on Legends of the Fall, which is nice. It's nice to have a Brad Pitt story on the podcast when we're not dishing on Meet Joe Black, which he would film after this. Um, but yeah, he'd had a bad experience filming Legends of the Fall, where they'd taken out his favorite scene in the movie because audiences didn't think it made his character likable. Um, and he was like, no, that was the entire point. So when Brad Pitt signed on, he said the only way that he would do seven was if, and I quote, the head stays in the box. Mm-hmm. Put it in the put it in the contract that the head stays in the box. Um, and that was very much like the only way that it could be made. And Walker's talked about like the joy of working with Fincher, where he showed up on the first day meeting Fincher with a notepad to take suggestions for rewrites. And Fincher basically said, put away the put away the notebook. I'm not going to ask you to change the script. We're going to talk about the script and I want to figure out how that works. And apparently Walker would actually physically hang around the set during filming so that he could tweak lines on the spot if they needed to. And it was a much more collaborative sort of process than writers in Hollywood are generally used to experiencing, which is is remarkable and kind of something I think speaks to Fincher um, as a filmmaker. Also notable, Walker plays the first dead body that we see on screen. Um, hmm. He plays the body in the apartment that Somerset visits at the very start of the film. Um, that is, yeah. His... Just look at all that passion flashed up on the wall. Yeah, which it... <laughs> that's the guy. Um, it's uh, like I said, uh, Chechik went on to direct the Avengers and fe- and basically killed his film career. When the film was in his lap, uh, Denzel Washington was in the was in line to play Mills, but ultimately passed. He, and Washington's quote is saying, "I passed on seven. When I saw the finished product, I was like, oh, shoot. He went on to make virtuosity instead. <laughs> Talk about picking your results. Well, I mean, again, lots of stories about like fantasy casting for this. Apparently, the role of oh, Somerset... These are hilarious. These yeah. are like, hilarious. So Somerset, I've, I was looking up some names. Somerset was kind Somerset. of written for the part with William Hurt was imagined as playing Somerset in the kind of when the script was written. Uh, but people like Al Pacino turned it down to work on City Hall, for example. Oh, thank God. Could you imagine... <laughs> The world is worth fighting for. I believe that's the second part. <laughs> but um, also Gene Hackman turned it down because it would involve night shoots, which I kind of adore as well. Um, <laughs> but yeah, and the, basically, so it, it took a while until they settled on uh, Morgan Freeman and they settled on Brad Pitt. But it's kind of amazing because you now see them and you can't think of anybody but Freeman. Wasn't Hackman originally offered um, when Michelle Pfeiffer was was sort of slated for uh, Sounds of the Lambs wasn't Hackman to be Lecter as well so he turned yeah, down two, two of the biggest kind of horror thrillers of the 90s he has two Oscars he's alright but <laughs> yeah. I, think, I think he um, would have been serviceable in both those roles like probably they wouldn't have been the, the it, it been might the, have been the great movies that they were but who knows like 
I think he he would have done an okay job. Yeah. It would have played up the French connection aspect, which I think is a huge influence here. This idea of kind of like the chase through the city and stuff like that. Yeah. So I think having Hackman here would be Fincher saying, yes, I'm doing Friedkin. I am very yeah. explicitly doing Friedkin. A bit a bit obvious, maybe, I would yeah. have said. So I, I think, listen, he's already Popeye. He's already got an iconic <laughs> role. So I think we're all right. Uh, Robert Duvall turned down Somerset as well, actually. And I think Harrison Ford was considered. Um, one of my favorites, uh, one of my favorite casting stories is allegedly allegedly Sylvester Stallone turned down Mills. Oh, God. <laughs> There's a question, Bernice. Um, Would that have been a better film? Pacino and Stallone in Seven. I mean, I'd watch it, you know? Maybe I'd pay anything to watch it. That would probably be on the other list that we cover on this podcast, I think, perhaps. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Ra- Ra- Raging Bull versus Rocky. <laughs> there's actually that movie that movie does exist unfortunately andrew i'm afraid are you did you just confuse pacino and de niro yes yes you he did. did yes he did um oh, oh dear <laughs> don't tell the internet um but... <laughs> um uh, the aforementioned nicholas cage actually was considered for Mills. uh considered i don't know if it was offered to him um that would be fun so nick um, can you read the final scene here and just give it everything you've got uh uh wah 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 Tell me what's in the bar. I can't do a good Nicholas Cage. I do a lot of good impressions, but that's not one of them. Okay, well, uh, we seem to be talking about the box a lot, so let's just talk about the final sequence because this is perhaps one of the most one of the most iconic what? sequences in the film, and perhaps the most memorable sequence, and one of the most memorable God, sequences. And we didn't culture. even get to talk about who was considered for John Doe. Oh, two words: Michael, Michael Stipe from OREM, because obviously he'd worked with Fincher as a music video select, uh, dire- sorry, music video kind of director. And he's bald. And and he's bald, which also helps. Yeah, and I, the fact that the character. Him. The character didn't have any lines originally. The character wasn't supposed to have any lines, which was also handy if you're going to cast a pop star in the role as well. Also, funny enough, ter- uh, Val Kilmer turned it down too, but there you go. It was it Val Kilmer who recommended Spacey, if I remember correctly? There's some sort of connection you, there, I think. You could be right. I cannot remember who it was. I feel like I feel like saying it was Brad Pitt's, Jess, oh, okay. I can't be sure. Um, anyway. But yes, so the closing scene, which is one of the most memorable sequences, kind of arguably in 90s cinema. Um, and again, one of the ones that the studio fought very, very hard to change at, at various points. At one point, they considered, what if it's one of Mills's dog's head in the box, was a question that they asked. Which is why you no, get that. they couldn't do that. <laughs> that would be too much. Yeah. Uh, that would be too much. Yeah, yeah. But no, no. Well, but that, we know we know how much people identify with like the the um, having 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 that as a motivation in a movie. Yeah, the John Wick movies. Do something like the the only problem with having the dog in the box would be that they have to show like there has to be more of the movie for his <laughs> uh, for his proper revenge. You know. Mm. Yeah. Um, shooting him in the head and several times afterwards won't do it well no it, it's that's why you get that joke where they pull over and it's like it's a dead dog and you cut to john doe's reaction i didn't do that <laughs> yeah yeah which is fincher very very like pointedly raising the middle finger at the studio which i kind of adore also. can i just say for many years after i saw this i mean i'd say at least three or four years I didn't think it was a head in the box. And what I thought was in the box was actually kind of worse in a way. And that I thought as a teenager, I thought it was um, basically the fetus, which is, which is much worse. I mean, Uh, so I actually, in my own head, I was actually kind of relieved when I found that it was Gwyneth. I mean, you know, I don't know disrespect to Gwyneth Paltrow, but it it seemed less bad. It was just, yeah, yeah, a less grotesqueness that, you know. 
The baby is okay. Yeah. He just cut her head off. Um. <laughs> it's still good. It's it's just a flesh wound. Um, yeah. But, uh, well, I mean, there were several other endings that were considered as well. So, for example, they considered um, Somerset killing him instead. Somerset killing John Doe instead in order to protect Mills, for example. They also considered Mills shooting Somerset to keep to kill in order to let him kill John Doe. At one point, and I kind of adore this because like this feels like it's the Sylvester Stallone and El Pacino version. But at one point, the studio said, wait, 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 what if and hear me out here. They open the box and inside the box, it's not like her head, but it's like a television set. And on the television set, she's tied to a chair and they have to race against time in order to save her. What if we do that? Um, which I kind, of, I kind of adore, and it's, it's like people whose whose jobs it is to um, come like, up with ideas or <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. to make movies. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I I've heard actually that sometimes they do have good ideas. Um, sometimes, but um, but it like any any time you hear about them, it's 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 just like that they they. They just seem like these people who are, who are just like, how about, and, and then it's like, so I haven't <laughs> thought about this at all. I just found out that we're having this meeting like 15 minutes ago. But how about, yeah, where, where it does, did, you're, you're kind of like, how did these people get anywhere near a movie? Well, the, the issue is that I think, and this is where producer Arnold Kopelstein um, said that like they did preview screenings. And while Fincher, as, as Phil rightly pointed out, loved the reaction from audiences, the fact was that like audience scores for seven were at 70 percent uh, when, like, for example, The Fugitive tested at 98 percent. So the studio got kind of nervous about that was basically where those came from. Like they were very anxious about how that, that was certainly where Copes was coming from because the fugitive was kind of a surprise hit in a way like that got a huge box office did well with critics and got a bunch of Oscar nominations including best picture so I mean I wouldn't think Copelson was signing on to this script with that level of ambition it almost feels like when you think when you hear about how much they wanted to change the ending that perhaps he wanted to just save the film like yeah at least make a film that he might get his money back on well that that was probably a bit disingenuous but still but now that that was the worry was that like it would put audiences off and it would like you get terrible reviews on it and it would sour them on the film ironically it seems to have had the opposite effect because they've talked about how like what happened was it became a word of mouth sensation so it opened the head in the box movie the head in the box well that was that was apparently how fincher pitched it to copelson um in terms of getting him to sign on to it was he said I don't care about opening box office weekend. What I want is like, I want 30 years from now for three people in their thirties to be at a party together, having a beer. And one of them to say, Hey, I was flicking through the channels the other night and I saw that movie. You remember the one, the one at the end with a head in the box. It's like, yeah, I love that movie. That's what I want to do. And apparently that's how Fincher was able to convince Coppelson to go, okay, fine. You can do it. And what they found out was that it was actually, it became a word of mouth sensation. So the movie opened and it didn't have a huge opening weekend, but it had a $13 million, $13 million, which is fairly decent to be fair, but it's not like, you know, earth shattering uh, levels, but it all. No, but, but sorry, actually you were going to say, I think you're about, we're going to tell the same story. But it held, it held remarkably well over the weeks that followed. It's it's following two weeks had a remarkably low drop. And that was because people were going out and saying, 
I saw this movie. It's amazing. You have to go see it. You won't believe what happens in it. So ironically, four weeks, yeah. four weeks at number one in the US box office uh, in the mid this movie, which is and again, this movie, which is a movie that is very abrasive and people worried about being very confrontational. And ended up becoming mm-hmm. kind of a cult phenomenon, which are not a cult, a mainstream phenomenon. Three hundred and thirty million dollars on a thirty-three million dollar budget. Which can't it, argue with that. Yeah, that's remarkable. That's at least twice as much then. <laughs> is is it profitable? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, is it profitable? Uh, stay tuned for my column at Forbes. Um, but yeah, it, it's it's kind of it is. It is kind of a striking success story, and again, it, it's remarkable because it is so bleak. Apparently. There was one compromise that was made with the studio, which was Fincher wanted the movie to end with Mills shooting John Doe in the face and shooting him several times as corpse and then cutting to black and leaving just a black screen for a couple of seconds. And then the credits arrive. But apparently the studio talked him down and said, OK, we'll give you a quick coda where like the police chief says, oh, it's OK. We'll take care of him. He'll be taken care of. And then Somerset offers his kind of like little uh, little white flag of optimism, which is like, yep, the world is terrible, but I haven't given up hope entirely. Apparently Fincher still to this day uh, doesn't like that ending. He still feels it's a cop out. But I think I think it works I, relatively I, well. Yeah, I disagree <laughs> with Fincher on that. Like, obviously, mm. obviously like I haven't seen the movie where it, it, it goes to black. And I'm sure if it did, I'd be like, wow, what an amazing way to end. Um, but, but wouldn't you be um, bloody miserable? Yeah, and I don't really want John Doe to have the last word. And I know maybe that's a bit of kind of like a boring way to think about these things. But I, I'm kind of with uh, Mills in 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 that I think um, uh, John Doe is is just full of um, like that and 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 that he's a really um, judgmental piece of. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and vaguely hypocritical as like, well like i mean like yeah, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. he's a movie of the week he's not an artist he's an art critic as a serial killer he's he's you know almost unbearable it's like you can imagine being stuck at a dinner party with john doe for all eternity and it just being the worst night of your life it's, it's yeah. also such a hackneyed plan that he has sorry andrew um, no 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 not at all no, but, but I mean the whole uh, seven deadly sins. It's it's straight out of sort of like pulp, pulp the worst kind of pulp B movie filmmaking, and also good films like Theater of Blood, where people are murdered um, uh, in 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 famous chicks. Sorry, Diana Rigg just died, and she's in this great film from the seventies called Theater of Blood with Vincent oh, Price, brilliant. where brilliant. he takes he's a Shakespearean actor who takes uh, John Doe like revenge on his critics by faking his own death. And then murdering them according to how deaths happen in Shakespeare. Like it's a re- it's a really cheesy kind of trope that that particularly in B movies and also in great films like Theater of Blood, the abominable Doctor Fives. I mean, Vincent Price is all over this. Um, so it's actually as a if you, the concept for the film is something that's actually really cheesy and well trodden, but it's just the sheer. I mean, it's the style and the verve and the confidence with which it's carried out, and the sheer, the way it really doubles down and it's you know bleakness i do like i think andrew i think you're right that there's a sense that um you know the the ending tentatively (laughs) optimistic we might call it but (laughs) at least at least john doe hasn't perhaps won entirely you know the the the, the cynicism of of um somerset character has perhaps been turned into resolve to try and change change the world even if it's maybe futile so i am on that point i would say and that's I think the use or John Doe's use of the seven deadly sins as his MO, I think it quite, it shows up as well. Kind of his 
like you're describing somebody said there how he's kind of he's a hypocrite um which is which is i think very accurate because we're talking about somebody who on the surface level is being inspired by you know ideas of sin from scripture and things like that there's um there's a he ha- well, quite extremely. He, he's, he misunderstood. <laughs> just but the thing a is, <laughs> just a little, just a little. Like, like you remember the remember the sequence when they actually go into Doe's apartment and they're looking around, and there's a big neon cross above his bed, <laughs> which is a, a very on the nose point, but it's about the only symbol of Christian faith that actually really appears in the film. Like the seven deadly sins themselves, like they're not a they're not a biblical creation. That's Saint Thomas Aquinas, and you know there's there's a lot of references to uh, the Marquis de Sade. De Sade. Marquis de Sade. Marquis de Sade. We go through Dante, I, I, Milton, I, I, all these. I love, but, by the way, one of my favorite details in that sequence is like apparently Brad Pitt ad lib that Marquis de, Marquis de Sade, um, uh, and basically no, apparently Sade. The Sade, sorry, that, Marky, that, um, that singer, uh, musician. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But apparently, um, the first, the first, the first time that he delivered that line, apparently Morgan Freeman broke character, laughed out loud, and said, "Not even Mills is that fecking stupid." Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, Phil. I interrupted you. Um, um, but like, like when Somerset is investigating uh, the possible motive. And drive behind these crimes. Like he's looking at Dante Alighieri, he's looking at Milton, I is looking at the Marquis de Chardet. He's reading of human. <laughs> he's reading of human bondage. Bondage, not what you're thinking. Um, but never the Bible, never core texts. And I think this is a a sly way of just undermining any kind of uh, legitimacy that. Uh, that Doe might claim in any theological or philosophical sense, because, you know, it's that classic idea of uh, you can be a a good Christian doing very bad things, except there's no, you know, there's nothing to suggest he is that. He is clearly just a lunatic who has seized on this one thing, this one particular thing. and A rich lunatic has... as well, by the way. It's made very clear that he's independently wealthy as well. He, like it's this... Well-educated. And totally insane. <laughs> he is Batman. He's Batman with uh, he's Batman with a an even more OTT mo, yeah. but uh, a much shorter uh, a much shorter <laughs> time frame for his overall plan. Um, it's yeah. So I mean, there's possible readings to uh, what this has to say about religion in a big sense, but I don't think so. I think uh, I, I think Doe is just too. He's just too focused on this one thing. He's clearly become corrupted by some influence. Like he's just he's he's gone mad and just taken this one thing and run with it. So I mean, it's very it's, much what Bernice mentions. It's yeah, it's very much what Bernice mentions. That kind of like student kind of secondary reading. You know, he's yeah. like you have this idea of like you know Mills reading the kind of supplementary reading on the cortex, but you have the fact Doe himself is simply again playing the rereading and rehashing the classics without understanding them, perhaps. I actually I remember. feel like if, oh, if John Doe had been pointed towards a good PhD, supportive PhD program at an early stage in his development, he probably could have been, you know, he's clearly got the obsessional drive. He loves taking notes. He's got a very mm. fine collection of notebooks, um, you know. I, I think, I think, 
we could have made something of them, you know, if we channeled those those tendencies into into the you know something healthy and productive like academia. <laughs> I just remember I studied I studied Descartes in philosophy in college, and this like just first year undergrad philosophy. Um, we were looking at Descartes and Cogito Ergo Sum and all of that, and we were the lecturer was advising us on the uh, Christmas exam, and he just looked at us all and said. The first person who writes about the Matrix in this is going to fail. <laughs> Please. What if oh, you're the no. second person? Um. <laughs> the the sec- first, second and thousandth person had been through that course long ago. So no. So, but John Doe was a bit like that. He's like, he sees on this and just taken it so literally that it has these utterly horrific consequences. You yeah. need a proper supervision. Yeah, very mm. quickly um, on, on this couple of things. The notebooks, uh, apparently 15 grand was spent on designing the journals, Clive Piercy and John Sabell. And they'd apparently like copy, obviously, the photos from crime scenes that are there, the photos from death scenes that are there, uh, but also like actual suicide notes they would read and basically incorporate into the text as well. And they'd actually cook the they'd actually cook the journals in ovens to make them seem like they were used to give them kind of like brown and get them to kind of stained and old and kind of fragile and stuff, which I really like in terms of texture. Uh, but in terms of this this John Doe PhD student discussion that we're going on, one of the interesting uh, things that's been noted, and I think this actually ties in nicely to something Bernice mentioned kind of earlier about Fincher's preoccupation with serial killers or kind of like his returning fascination with them. And I think this is kind of interesting because it gets in at one of the core themes of the film. This idea that like the deadliest sin in Seven isn't any of the seven deadly sins. It's it's apathy and it's passivity. And it's this idea of accepting the world is like a sin hole and that it's lost and that it's terrible and that there's no redemption. So you might as well just give in and, and kind of indulge your worst self. But I think that what's interesting is that, you know, it's been suggested that Fincher and particularly Fincher's style is drawn towards serial killers because it gets you that idea of audience participation, audience involvement. Like Fincher generally doesn't use handheld footage, as we mentioned. He doesn't get in for close-ups. What he tends to do is he tends to frame scenes at kind of a remove, and he tends to have camera movements that are programmed and very sort of uh, structured and very, you know, they're, they're designed not to draw attention to themselves. So the audience member, when you're watching a Fincher film, is typically left to do a lot of interpretation. You're, you're left to do and figure out what you're looking at in the, in the frame and what you're kind of staring at. And so the question of like, does this make you kind of complicit in it? Does this kind of make you an observer? Because, I mean, there's this big thing that runs through where Somerset is talking about what he and what Mills are doing, which is we're collecting all the evidence, taking all the pictures and samples, writing everything down, noting the times that things happen. They're observers. And again, like at the climax, Doe himself points out, like, if this is a police procedural, the police are really fecking terrible at it. The only reason that they catch him is because he literally walks into the precinct and announces himself. And he doesn't even like quietly. He has to shout at the top of his voice in order to get arrested in the first place. But like even throughout, you have this idea of kind of Mills and, and kind of Somerset as observers, like SWAT before Dicks, for example, when they raid the apartment that has sloth in it, where they're just kind of there to pick up the pieces afterwards. And you have even like the idea of kind of like, you know, the 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 SWAT team being kind of passively judgmental of the victim of the sloth victim. You got what you deserved or the doctor saying that, you know, he still has hell to look forward to when he gets to the end. So you have this idea of everybody in the movie and implicitly also the audience watching the movie being kind of complicit in this apathy because we are all watching and observing rather than making things happen or rather than doing anything about it. And I think that maybe that's kind of fascinating because he uses 
Fincher uses serial killers that way. I think he uses them that way in Zodiac as well. Um, in particular, the way the Zodiac killer is kind of kept off screen. And, and the idea is the obsession with the Zodiac killer more than the Zodiac killer himself or his pathology. But I think even here with John Doe, like we talked about how empty John Doe is. The idea that, you know, so much of the film is about observing John Doe and kind of watching John Doe. And the question of, you know, again, that old cliche of horror movies, does that make us complicit with John Doe? I don't know. I think the way the film is structured, like we never see any of the murders occur. We only arrive after the fact. Um, I don't think I don't think the film is seeking to make us complicit with John Doe. It's definitely more trying to make us complicit with what Somerset probably fears in himself is this sense of apathy. Like you say, this is one of the grand themes of the film. So it's it's kind of hard not to feel apathetic where it, we're in the we're watching a film where the where the killer's MO is that there are seven deadly sins. There's going to be a murder for each one. So And one a day like one. clockwork as well, because it's seven days. Yeah. It's the seven days before Somerset retires as well. Yeah. And by the time we get to the fourth and the fifth murders, so like Lust, Lust, Pride, by the time we get to that stage, there is a certain kind of apathy weaved into the structure of the film because audience expectation is built up to, to think that we're going to see out the seven murders. Um, so the apathy is there intentionally. Like, I... We're, de- we're designed to think that this is just the way these things go and uh, working against the machinations of the film and the script, they're not going to help. Like this is the way it goes until, of course, somebody has to do something extreme. And so John Doe walks into the station and that's as big a rug pull as any you'll find in this genre. Like the killer turning himself we've in. never met before turns himself in. But of course, that's not the that's not the ace of his sleeve either. And by the way, I I love that the city is so crappy and everybody in the city is so apathetic that he's able to get a taxi with the bloodstained shirt and nobody notices or walk into the police station with the bloodstained shirt. I appreciate a taxi driver who doesn't ask those sorts of questions. Yeah, and I and it's it's. I suppose, like, it's interesting that we call him a hypocrite because he he is one of the uh, victims of the the seven deadly sin murders. So, so like, like he has uh, credit where it's and, due. He's self aware and an admission but is he? of of well, he he he, he acknowledges he, that envy is his sin. No, yeah, but but is but like can, looking at him? Do you re- looking at him? Do you really believe that envy is his sin? If anything, pride is his sin because of the way. Like he's very proud of what he's done. He's very like again yeah. convinced that what he's done is very good and very important and very but worthy. He, and we're talking about. Well, I run himself free sins. sin though. Is yeah. the problem he can't kill himself seven times. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit of help. He gets that uh, with a little help from his friends. Yeah, and he, he does admit he, himself that there is nothing wrong with a man taking pride in his work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, no. Like, again, and uh, like Somerset, that's one of those armor piercing questions where Somerset sees right through the nonsense. Because I, I don't honestly believe for a moment that, like, John Doe ever wanted a family life or ever wanted Mills's life. I, like, I, there's no situation where it's like, ah, 
I, you know, maybe actually I didn't want to do this thing that I did and therefore I felt guilty about my envy and therefore I needed to be killed in order for you to become wrath. It's very much a cold mechanical calculation and kind of like a, you know, like a clockwork design. It's like running marbles down a Rube Goldberg machine. It's like, no, I want, I want Mills to kill me because that will make this story that I'm telling or this kind of like, this will make me immortal or make me memorable more than it's, this is a logical extension of my core philosophy, you know, philosophy, you know, philosophy, basically. But whether you believe him or not, it doesn't underestimate, well, one, the ferocity of his crimes. And number two, and this is going to sound, this is supposed to sound really bad. So bear with me. But the last scene before the final showdown in the desert, we have Mill, Somerset and John Doe driving in out the of the city. And, you know, each of them is kind of espousing a different viewpoint. So you've got Mills with this idealist who is like just trying to you know show up John Doe like we call you, so insane, just tell us what yeah. we want to know. Uh or he's dismissing John Doe's insane, all of that. You've got uh got John Doe who is utterly self righteous in what is about to pass and believes he is doing the Lord's work, as it were. And then in between them, kind of, you have Somerset who's taking it all in, who's the 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 passive listener watcher, the almost the apathetic. Um, but at least we do get glimmers that he's not as we're shown that he's not as apathetic as even he might fear. Like he's willing to call out John Doe on what he's saying. Like he he says himself. Um, isn't it, isn't it a bit odd that somebody who is doing the work on behalf of the Lord should take such pride in it? And I love that uh, um, Doe just gives him a very, the most cliched answer you could imagine. The Lord works in mysterious ways. Spacey is almost holding his eyes at that. Um, but it very points through that. Com- wrong. Oh yeah, who, Doe? Yeah, yeah, like to, to, to turn each scene on against the center. Uh, on against the center. Like where where like he, where even that get that cue from? Like well, wh- why why is why what made you think that that was an okay thing to do? Well, there's clearly no... <laughs> We're talking about a very sick man here. Let's let's bear that in mind. You're you're trying to explain what is probably very inex- best left unexplained. And uh, but um there is that point where during his his spiel slash rant um doe is talking about the various sinners and the sins he's witnessed and he says but that's the point we see a sin on every street corner in every home and we tolerate it we tolerate it morning noon and night because it's trivial and there is an there is a point a moment where if a viewer is listening to this you think "Mm, he's kind of right isn't he like we do put up with a lot of stuff in this world. We do a lot of complaining about things that happen. But, you know, we see stuff, bad things happening all the time. Just glad that we don't feel a need to respond to it in the way that he does. Well, I mean, but the, the correct way to respond to that is the way that Somerset does in the opening scene, which is when you're confronted with a horror like that to ask, what about the child? You know, and you have the cop who dismisses that. It's like, you're always asking these stupid questions. I'm going to be glad when you're gone. But that's that's the response that you have to the world being a terrible place is to go. Yeah. Well, yeah. What what can we do or what is there that we need to worry about or what can we fix or what is an actual concern here? As opposed to. But that's like yeah. either washing your hands of it like all the cops do in the movie 
or doing what John Doe does, which is implicitly using it as an excuse Punishing. to do whatever he wanted to do oh, anyway. I was just saying, Mills and, and John Doe are uh, paralleled with one another, right with each other right from the very start of the film. You've got the use of the metronome uh, with Somerset, sorry, Somerset and the killer, sorry, are yeah. paralleled. They're both associated with libraries. A library card is a crucial clue. The library is the only warm, kind of welcoming, beautiful place in the whole film. But you get the sense that Somerset uses the library in the spirit that the best enlightened ideal of the way in which it's meant to be used, which is for, for, for knowledge, for bettering the world, for becoming better himself. Whereas um, you have... Uh, John Doe, who's kind of a bad student, who has um, who has taken all the wrong, who's, who's picked up bits and pieces and has clearly done some of the reading, but as you kind of intimated earlier, has picked up on all the all the wrong bits and is using it for the wrong purposes. And and I, I think it's interesting the way that they are. There's a lot of um, scenes where they're kind of like you get the actions of the killer, which in some way kind of parallel a physical action. That, that 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 Somerset has done before. It's interesting too. At Somerset, you get the scene where I remember watching the film for the first time, where he's throwing a switchblade at a dartboard, and you think, "Well, come on, you know." <laughs> Chekhov's razor, Chekhov's switchblade. There's, yeah, there's going to be a moment later on where he's going to like, you know, he's got a cat serial He was going to to you know um, hit Kevin Spacey in the in the forehead with it at the end of the film. But of course, he the most um, famous use of the switchblade is to open the box with um, Pearl Pearl Gwyneth Pearl Tracy in it. Um, so um, it's uh, they are. I think there's really interesting parallels between both of them being loners, obsessed with order, convinced that the city is kind of unsavable and already lost. But it's how they go about coping with that knowledge is yeah. is really interesting. So yeah. in sum, he's a nutbag. Absolutely. Just got the fucker's got a library card. Doesn't make him Yoda. Um, but no, I, still one of my favorite but, lines in the whole movie. But even like, yeah, and the wonderful sound design that you have. Like you hear the movie before you see it. Like before the actual first shot of the movie following Somerset on his day, you hear the movie and you have him trying to drown it out with the metronome. Like mm. the metronome is designed so that he can lock himself away almost like John Doe in his room the sound design is so important in this film because you know one of the things about city life that's actually very oppressive we all sort of accept is that you're under a constant aural assault I live next to a Lewis line which they've been without revealing my address on the air they've been digging it up a lot recently And I started to feel like the scene where Gwyneth or where Tracy and um, Mills are in their apartment and the trains keep going past even this like haven of quiet domestic space constantly being invaded by the city and then the only quiet bits we get in the film are are right at the end and you get the sunlight and are and it's and we're outside and it feels like for a moment you're going to get this moment of kind of like escape from the city but then you see the power lines at the chopper circling and it's like you can't even get away from the noise of the city when you're outside of the city limits itself um so. Yep. These grids and lines continue past the city and out into like beyond the city. Like it's one of those terrible things where it's like beyond the city, there's literally just desert. There's nothing. It's just dead. These power lines and roads that go nowhere. Um, it is worth noting that like one of the introductory sequences, the title sequence, uh, which we might talk about briefly, but they had originally planned for the title sequence to follow Morgan Freeman's character Somerset as he would go to the new house that he was going to buy to retire. So it would be like a trip away from the city out into the suburbs, into this peaceful existence. Um, and they actually... Uh, there, that's, that sequence is actually, uh, it's on like Blu-ray and DVD yeah. releases as a deleted scene. It's functional, you know? Uh, it's The thing is, it's comparing to the actual title sequence. Well, it would probably undercut the movie because it, like, it feels like, as Bernice mentioned, like you've spent the entire movie in the city. When you get to the climax, getting out of the city feels like a big deal. It probably wouldn't feel as much a big deal if like your second scene had been or your second sequence 
had taken you out of the city kind of almost immediately. But yeah, the, the, mm. the title sequence is absolutely stunning. One of the most influential um, sort of title sequences ever. Um, it was designed by Kyle Cooper, um, who took influence from, I think, Saul Bass in designing it. And again, it's it's been suggested that this is one of the most hugely influential ones. You can see it in every serial killer movie that's been made since has done a version of this. It's like Red Dragon, Sanctimony, Taking Lives and The Bone Collector all have their own variants on this sequence. But it's it's wonderfully kind of oppressive and dark. And it was decided, like Fincher decided that um, they did a test screening for executives and they hadn't got the Morgan Freeman footage ready. And so what they did was they did a slideshow of like what they imagined would be in John Doe's notes. And the studio executives loved this. And they said, yep, yeah, let's let's do that. Let's use that as the title sequence. And Fincher, apparently not not one to say, well, that's a good idea. I'll keep it was like, no, what we're going to do is we're going to take another like 80 grand um, and basically do it from do it from scratch and make it brilliant. Um, and so actually, like, put it together, put together the notebook, the shots of the notebook. And again, even little details like John Doe dipping his tea bag. Slicing his... Sl- yeah. his fingers, but like dipping in the tea bag, which is an action that you see later in the film when he's being held mm. in kind of the interrogation room. Little details it's like that. as well because it's not, it's not really expositional. Like, it, it's, it's, um, it shows you things, but not in a way that kind of um, is just feeding you. Yeah, like plot, like, like mm-hmm. in Red Dragon, it's a lot of kind of newspaper <laughs> clipping. This is yeah. why yeah. this you know? killer is the way that he is. Yeah, it's like literally exactly. like here, here is the character's motivation, um, in a scrapbook form, with pictures. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, but like it, it is more mood based. Oh, sorry, Brittany. I was going to say that the 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 opening sequence as well establishes right from the start that uh, we're this is already John Doe's story. Um, he's already in control of the narrative in a way. And we're already, we start off the film, it's only when you see it for the second time that you might realize that you're, you've, you started off the film in his headspace. And in a way, the whole film is about being in his headspace. Yeah, like ev- every choice in that title sequence, it's it feels like something that John Doe would have done. Like the, the actual credits, the names, they look like they've been scratched into the film. And they're all out of line um, with the titles as well. Like so, the titles are in five exactly. font, and then you have like the the writer's name appears above his credit as written by, which yeah. is just really disturbing and unsettling. And I like that the like we're talking about the sound design of the film, how it's basically an oral assault most of the way through the film. No more so than in that title sequence where it's soundtracked by a, a version of Nine Inch Nails' Closer. And if you want some NSFW fun, uh, Darren, you can include a link to that video in the show notes. Um, Thank you. But, uh, it inclu- but um, if um, like it, it's just a kind of like an instrumental version, all you, you only get one line from the song, which it might be ultimate, which might be John Doe's ultimate uh, mission statement: "You bring me closer to God." Um, this is Bernie's right. This is. Absolutely, John Doe's story from the start laid out right there for all to see. Yeah. Which is remarkable given that the character doesn't appear for, you know, the first 90 minutes of the film outside a brief cameo where he's taking a snapshot of, like, Brad Pitt and being yelled at. And, like, you might... Yeah, I got your picture, man! <laughs> yeah, you might recognise <laughs> Kevin Spacey's large ham voice there. But, yeah, like, one of the things about it was, like, bringing Doe into the story as early as possible and making sure that he was a presence even before he was kind of keenly felt. Because I... What, rewatching it, I was surprised how long it took to get to to stuff like that. How long it took, say, to realize that this was a serial killer, or how long 
it took for both Somerset and Mills to be working the case together. Because there's a whole stretch at the start where Somerset kind of takes a different case or kind of walks away and Mills is reassigned. But it turns out that Mills is assigned to the second murder and they get back together. It's all very, very elegantly designed. Like in terms of like, we talked about like its themes and its structure. In terms of actually its writing and pacing and rhythm, the script is incredible. Like at the core of it, what you have is uh, is a buddy cop movie, or at least what could easily become one. <laughs> it's like you know the old hand who's you know he's just two days away from retirement. Okay, a week, but same idea. And you've got the never ends well, does it? No, and you've got the rook, <laughs> but not for him though. Those. Crucially, which is great. I kind of like that's the subversion. It's like John Doe turning himself in. It's like you're waiting for the retiree to keep kick in with the cop, and it's like oh wait, no, wrong cop. It's great. <laughs> it's like very clever. You can say. You can say like how influential this movie has been and that things seem hackneyed whereas like kind of movies after this have just taken that up. But that seven days to retirement thing is <laughs> yeah, so kind of, you know, it's like setting the table. Yeah. Like a couple of years before this, The Simpsons took the mick out of that with uh, with one of the McBain movies. Mendoza! <laughs> it's, yeah, it's a trope that's as old as the hills and... What Seven does, what Andrew Kevin Walker's script does so cleverly, it it puts them in there right at the start just to undermine your expectations. You think, oh, here we go again. It's another one of these. But, you know, as soon as the bodies start piling up, uh, you realize that we're, we're on a very different journey here. Uh, it's a it's a buddy cop movie at, to, on the surface. But the level of respect uh, that Mills and Somerset give each other it's like it's you witness the slow building of a working relationship. If you actually watch like the framing of Mills and Somerset in any shot they have together, they get closer like, and closer over the course. Closer of and closer, physically closer and closer. Um, like they go from being like standing opposite each other in confrontation in the first in their first scene together to a scene about halfway through the film where they've actually fallen asleep against each other in a, <laughs> a lovely in a shot of of strange intimacy, uh, and then I, I expected Orly Army to kind of go up to them and say. Um... All right, put on your socks and get your hands off your cocks. <laughs> you know, to, for them to kind of jump up. Well, um, we do have a fair them. amount of kind of 90s gay scare from Mills himself, to be fair, repeatedly throughout. So it feels... <laughs> yeah. uh, it spe- that speaks for certain immaturity at, at oh, Mills. Yeah, no, yeah. Yeah, 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 I, yeah. Didn't, I didn't include one of his... Uh, yes, no, early, earlier yeah. I noticed that you changed his uh, description of Dante, that poetry <laughs> writing so-and-so. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. Hasn't, hasn't necessarily uh, aged well, but yeah, no, no. In case it, anybody it, listening thinks that <laughs> that's what was bleeped out. <laughs> <laughs> to be absolutely clear. Um, but no, no, it, it is, though. Like I think, And it, it's remarkable how well it's structured. And even, like, little things, like, again, Freeman's performance is remarkable here. But even, like, little gags. Like, I love the sequence where... You know, Mills offers to get a beer and, and kind of like Somerset's, I'll have a wine. And then he hands him the wine in this kind of tumbler, in this glass tumbler. And like Mills, sorry, Somerset absentmindedly puts it down. But when the next rumbling happens in the apartment, there's this wonderful sequence where he reflexively grabs the glass and you see Morgan Freeman giving a reaction like he's just realized that he's been served wine in a table glass. <laughs> and it's such a small thing, but it's so perfect. And it's it's like... It speaks to the character very well. Um, Freeman here is Freeman's just kind of doing that thing that people kind of associate Morgan Freeman with now. He's 
the wise, all-knowing, uh, basically Morgan Freeman. He's uh, like he's the character that you're going to stick to because he'll have the knowledge to get through this in one piece because you know he knows stuff. As we see, he goes to the library. He's he's getting closer to John Doe on a, a psychological level. Like he's thinking everything through compared to Mills, who's more a bit more logical, but uh, uh, instinctual and is a bit too hot headed. Um, but he plays beautifully. Like it's it's understated. It's you can just feel a tiredness come out through Freeman. Uh, every line he says, it feels like a sigh should come at some stage because he's just so fed up with this city. There's a scene where he's on his way to the library and hails a cab and Caddy says, where are you headed? <sighs> Far away from here. Oh yeah, and you have the shots uh, of violence outside just in the street unrelated to anything involving John Doe. And, you know, the sense of mm. like traveling through an urban kind of hellscape, which is horrifying. Um, yeah. Like again, it's, like that's what he's trying to escape. That sense of kind of a nomad, that sense of being alone in 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 a city and feeling disconnected from everybody, despite the fact that you are denser than ever. Can I just mention a character that you haven't really talked about yet, which I think is kind of telling because I think the analysis of the film does tend to focus on the blokes in it. I I can't believe I'm saying this, but I'm going to defend quite vociferously Gwyneth Paltrow. I think she's wonderful in this film, and I think. Agreed. The closeness of the male of Somerset and Mills is engineered by her. Um, she's the one that brings them together, and I think a big part of the reason why the end of the film has such a tremendous impact is because even though she's in essentially, you know, the the endangered wife slash girlfriend role, which is such a cliche, um, and she is essentially, you know, to use the comic book term, which I'm sure you know, Andrew, this is a classic fridging. Um, <laughs> You know, where she's 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 essentially murdered so that the male character can feel really really bad about it and get revenge. But exactly. even above and beyond all of that, she's I think it's it's a performance that there's a lot of depth and sensitivity to it. She's immensely likable, mm. and I think I think it sort of reminded me about how good Paltrow c- can and has been. And I know there's some of her business activities in subsequent <laughs> years haven't necessarily endeared her to the world at large but uh, you know she's a really good actress and tracy as a character is someone your heart you know certainly when i watch it your heart kind of breaks for her. that scene in the diner with herself and um and somerset where she's explaining you know she's realized that that she's pregnant and she really hates and despises this place and it's a heartbreaking scene particularly when you know what's coming and i yeah i just want to as i said surprising myself here but heartily defend Gwyneth Paltrow in this film I think she's fantastic and there's a great rapport with her and Brad Pitt of course they were famously celebrity gossip from the 90s they were I think engaged at the time um but she's really good in it and I think she's 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 also the only female character of any importance whatsoever in this film it's a very masculine film I think the only other female character if I'm correct that's is you've got the model that um cuts her nose off the spider face the pride, and then there's the, the, the sex worker horribly murdered yeah. and that's it basically um, unless I'm forgetting someone, someone there. So uh, the, junk, the junkie that they bribe to get into oh, John. Oh yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. Where they got her to so, go and, and yeah, That's so about that's it. That is about it. Like you say, it's a very masculine film, but it's yeah. But like the thing, the fact that it's such a male-heavy presence just adds to the uh, to the isolation and paranoia of it all. I think, which is no bad thing. Yeah, uh, no, I, I don't mean it necessarily as a critique. You know, there's not enough women. You know, I don't think that's yeah. that's. 
No, that's but fair. don't get but, me started on Christopher Nolan's female characters, but that's another <laughs> podcast. Um, but... <laughs> we let you and Darren discuss that until, I don't know, Judgment Day and Trumpet Sound. <laughs> But I will, I will say this. Um, I would be sceptical, a super niece of uh, Gwyneth Paltrow in terms of I don't know some of her performances and perhaps her business dealings. What a pile of goop! But she is excellent here, and she is like I, I know it's a cliche to be kind of like the the wife girlfriend characters ever, but and as well she's also kind of that character that slight cliche of being the the one real good in the film like fincher's eye certainly kind of frames her that way she's always dressed in white appears in bright brighter relatively speaking uh milieus like her and uh mill's apartment things like that but like you say she does serve a very key function in the plot she does serve a key function of actually bringing the two uh leads together closer uh, as a working relationship and as friends so she is vital she's a vital presence in many many ways and she does sell it quite well um and one of the interesting readings of seven has been like particularly in the context of david fincher's filmography and david fincher's kind of returns time and again to the idea of dysfunctional relationships um again gone girl being one of his most iconic films uh, but even things like the emphasis on misogyny and say the social network and things like that or even like panic room about a recent divorcee and stuff like that but this idea that you know marriage is difficult and hard and that it's impossible to have a normal marriage so here you have this idea that you know the the marriage or the relationship that exists between you know david and tracy mills is this attempt to create, I think Bernice was quite right to, to mention it earlier, this attempt to create a kind of a, a space that is idealized. It's the, it's the brightest set in the film. It's the best looking set in the film. It has dogs in it and everyone loves dogs, right? Um, and right. It, like it, it's almost like picture perfect. It's the happiest scene in the movie is them having dinner it's, together, it's laughing and joking. Yeah, that's it exactly. It's, probably, it's why Mills um, believes in... In, in goodness and yeah in goodness but the, mm. the the irony is that even that and and bernice was quite right when she said that even that literally cannot be cannot escape the city the gravity of the city quite literally with the shaking of the train but even that marriage is still subject to like the breakdown in communication between them because when tracy has the pregnancy she can't talk to David about it. Um, she doesn't feel like she can talk about her feelings about that with David because that would potentially sour the relationship. I mean, even Somerset himself says, like, if you decide not to keep it, you can't ever tell him. And like the fact that like at the climax of the movie, even John Doe ultimately knew about this and David didn't. So you have this idea that like even this kind of idealized and perfect marriage is still somewhat more complicated than it appears or than it's it's or than the people in it would accept that it is i think perhaps or is that too much what do you, what do you think no, what happened to the dogs after this film i was wondering like is somerset going to feed them i'd like to i'd like to think that's the coming together of the that's where the plots dovetail that somerset finds hope in these dogs and they're also they're they're not they're not city dogs they're like i could only see them briefly but they appear to possibly be great danes they're very large dogs that's oh like well that's actually quite made quite clear like when you do see them the briefly, newspaper like, on the ground like the, yeah the newspaper it's all over the place and they're kept in this small room they should not be there but you know everybody in that household is kind of trapped everybody in this car in this every character in this film is trapped and 
and I hate to nitpick on any film that I really, really love, but when that scene happens where they're sitting at the dinner table and suddenly everything starts shaking because of the subway train, I mean, logistically, I think we'd have to call BS on it. But thematically, that, that's that's it's fine. the part of Seven that you have a problem with, not the bit where John Doe tied a man to the de- the bed a year to the day and managed to so carefully manipulate everything in the judicial system, including the fingerprinting of a known pederast, so that it would happen that they would knock down the door exactly a year to the day after he'd started kidnapping and force feeding him. That's not something you have a problem with. You find it's more unrealistic that a table would shake. I retract my observation. Sorry, I'm sorry. That was very catty of me, but um, like I kind of think that like it's a like, it's, wow. a, it's a mood piece. I think that like I think seven is a mood yeah, piece. I think yeah, you, if you're if you're going to start pulling at those threads, like it's weird know, that that's know, the thread that ha- you pull at. But plenty of people have. I mean, I have seen little critiques like that. Like, well, that's not very realistic. <laughs> well, yeah, but like you say, Darren, there's, uh, you know, I, even if it, even if that is a legitimate gripe. I think as long as it fits in in some thematic way, I'm happy with yeah. it. I don't mind. The logistical nitpick I have, you know, maybe the 90s were different. I wasn't ordering a lot of parcels in the 90s because I was a child. <laughs> <laughs> but, but you know, that, that parcel arrives right on time. 7.01, it's one minute late. And, you know, I've never, I mean, I mean, Amazon's getting pretty good at this kind of stuff now, which is <laughs> even scary, really, dystopian, how they know where we are. But, uh, you know, that's a really good courier service. What was, what was the address? Even. That's the question. Like, what exactly. was the address? It's like one oh, one mobile home, empty derelict road, power line avenue. It's like, yeah. We're, we're like uh, Again, again, John Doe is independently wealthy. I think he can give any courier <laughs> once enough money to make sure that they are there on time. We're not actually yeah, nitpicking this film. He's clear. like Ozymandias and Watchmen where he actually owns every, all the companies, <laughs> yeah. you know, and this is part of, his, part of his design. We don't know that he doesn't. Make sure you're there, like almost on time. Yeah, but don't don't get there early. I want you to bomb down the road on the way there, like you're in a hurry. Yeah. That's why he's bombing and, down the road. He's afraid he's late. Yeah, yeah. yeah. They, they, like, how I, awkward I would it be he, if if John Doe had to make like fifteen to a half hour of conversation in that like big empty field with Mills and sort of Somerset while buying time for the delivery to arrive? It's like if he, spo- if he spoke to his lawyer and he was like, "Hey, uh, we were supposed to leave here at six, and <laughs> yeah. things haven't gone. Um, would you do me a favor? Would you call this number and just Ask apologize first? Yeah. Yeah. Say sorry, I was meant to be at that place to collect the um, the parcel. I need to push it back a bit. Um, yeah." Yeah, I've been asking the sign for it. It was really unprofessionally done. Well, yeah. that delivery having been made. Would you argue with Morgan Freeman waving a gun in your face? You know, yeah, probably. I feel like this guy probably <laughs> um, lost his job and was trying to kind of a, a explain it. It's like, oh, it's always something with you, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, really, the, the guy that is no way to hit. Here. Yeah, I'd like, I'd like to think that. I'd like to think his boss just said to him, there, that is no way to get ahead in this business. Oh. I'll see myself out. Um, just a slice of life there, I think. But yeah, again, like, and the fact the package is almost like literally dripping and stuff like that. Yeah. If you wanted to pick like logistically at the movie, there are any number of avenues that you could take. So I don't think the table shook a little bit at dinner is necessarily. Uh, okay. Like, well, yeah, okay. We, I'm just saying... We did our we did our research. We were trying to uh, find out if it, if it was accurate. So we contacted a logistics company and said, like, 
if we Can were transporting a, a box uh, with a head in it, <laughs> and now we're on some sort of watch list. We didn't explain <laughs> that it was in uh, speaking, for a movie. Speaking uh, of watch lists, actually, um, I mean, one thing that has to be said about Seven is that it has aged remarkably well, considering it doesn't have mobile phones or internet or anything like that. But one touch that kind of really creeps me out one of the main developments of the film comes from the fact that they illicitly or otherwise tracked down John Doe's library records. Yeah. Now, that was, you know, at the time, kind of seen as a, a bit of a, a no-no. Conspiracy theory even, sort of stuff, X-Files kind of stuff. It, They're yeah, even, if they got, even if they got Memento and Batman Begins alumnus Mark Boone Jr. to look it up for them. But... Uh, in the wake of the Patriot Act, actually, library records were able to be looked at legally by the FBI, which I just find... I hope that isn't the case in Ireland or I'm in a lot of trouble. <laughs> <laughs> but that, 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 again, is something that works thematically because it's like John Doe doesn't exist except as somebody who receives services. Like he's not actually a person in any tangible sense until you can figure out some part of the kind of system that he is partaking of. Like, he doesn't have any real presence in the world except the fact that he has a library card and therefore takes out books, and that's how you figure out By that he... By the way, his house is full of books that he owns, yeah, he's <laughs> going to the library. That, that's, he's also independently wealthy as well. I guess Amazon wasn't that big a thing in the 90s. You probably had to look you up see, specialist that's books. how he that's how he keeps his money. He doesn't buy, he goes to the library. Yeah, just uses all I public just supporting a valuable public institution. And can I just get this <laughs> off my chest? There's a library scene that really annoys me. Um... Where, uh, where Brad Pitt's character uh, Mills—he's eating in the library. Yes, he's eating a bag of crisps in the library. Which I'm sorry, that is nearly as egregious a crime as what John Doe does to Gwyneth <laughs> at the end of the film. So he lost a lot of credit with me at that moment in time. I, you do uh, not eat crisps in a library. It's just—it's not on. I love that sequence because it's such a—you know—Mills is a petulant child sequence. Like literally, all he has yeah. to do is just sit there and behave, or stand there and behave. And he can't even do that. Yeah. His attention span is He's eating the so noisiest fun. food you can possibly eat. Like, he might as well have nachos with him. So, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, just to come back to that point you're making, Darren, about how John Doe is not a, a character per se within the film until he decides to be. Like, you say he's only a receiver of services. Like, it's it, just in terms of the casting. Like, at the end of the film, the first credit that comes up is Kevin Spacey as John Doe. Uh, he's not in the opening credits. And famously and very cleverly he didn't appear in any of the marketing because of course if you reveal who it is uh, if you reveal he's on the poster and he doesn't appear for the first two thirds who of the film could he possibly be pretty quick yeah. but it's it was also quite clever because in a way they didn't have to because at the same time uh spacey had just made the usual suspects he just made outbreak and he was uh, cast he was casting this not long after finishing uh, swimming with sharks so he was kind of having a, a breakthrough moment at that time. So this probably just helps cement it as cement him as a character actor. Yeah. And I mean, say what you will about him, and plenty of people have and will, and fair enough. But he is mercilessly creepy here. I mean, you would buy that he did these things, wouldn't you? That's what wouldn't some you? people have said. He's really about. good. Yeah, that's quite literally how what we open the podcast <laughs> like... by saying. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, in the, within the he film, is very convincing. Within the film, except that he's mercilessly creepy. But you have to admit, he is mercilessly creepy in this movie. <laughs> no, I, what I mean is, I mean, you would buy him as this guy, as a as a killer. Absolutely. As, 
Oh. Somebody noticed that didn't Fincher direct the first episode and a lot of the first season of House of Cards? Am I hallucinating that or did that? Yeah, so that's interesting, yes. actually. Yeah, he executive produced it, yeah. And brought him back as a politician as well, yeah. Um, but yes, so is there anything else you want to talk about? Anything that we haven't discussed already with regards to um, Seven? Anything jumping out at people that we feel merits discussion? Um, oh, um, I really envy those carpentry supplies that uh, um, that John Doe has. Because when, when, when it comes into his house, he has like this big cabinet full of like all of these um, <laughs> kind of, um, you know, the, um, just... Uh, uh, chisels and lades and things and I'm like oh it would be, um, be great to have that we don't really see why um, I, I, I guess we have to imagine that it's sharp, sharp things he has sharp things <laughs> um, I would just like to take the opportunity to give a shout out to some of the technical the key technical crew yes. so it's shot by Darius Kanji who is yep. perhaps best known for shooting a number of horrors um, but this like you're you're saying earlier about the kind of films that it reminds you of like there's certain elements of noir to this um the film that keeps reminding me of and probably a consequence of the of all the rain um i keep thinking blade runner um it's that same kind of oppressive blue dank world blue black dank world that uh, kanji is able to summon here uh the man can just uh, like in certain shots like you get scenes like a whitened cadaver, whether it's gluttony up on the slab or sloth writhing in the bed, um, but enveloped in darkness, but they always stand out, is a, a marvellous, marvellous uh, cinematographer. Um, if you want more of his work, I highly recommend Uncut Gems from last year. We're talking about the sound design as well, but also shout out to the score from Howard Shore. Howard Shore, yeah. Of course, at this point, best known for his work with Cronenberg and also doing other uh, serial killer movies Lambs, around the time. Yeah. He came off Silence of the Lambs. He did Single White Female, things like that around the same time. Um, it the seemed score... like he was a sure choice for that. Oh, for heaven's sake. But, um, but uh, in this film, the score is very much um, a signature for, for John Doe. Like whenever the characters are coming up close and personal to Doe himself or his work, the score starts uh, jabbing in uh, with these monotonal but insisting stabbing almost movements, like these rising womp, womp. And as soon as you start hearing those very dark brasses coming in, um, you know, the, the evil is at hand. John Doe or his handiwork is near. Like when they're walking through his apartment, all you hear are those brassy noises. And it's, you feel like, yeah, this is, this is the atmosphere. This is the dread that you would feel if you're walking into that apartment on your own. Yeah. Um, Actually, in terms of kind of singling out sequences uh, from the movie, I actually really love the chase sequence uh, in the middle of the film, which is, again, something that feels very unusual because it's not where you would expect a chase sequence to be in a movie like this. And also because so much of the movie is shot on kind of steady cam to that point that going handheld for a lot of that sequence and obviously intercutting it with kind of steady cam shots and intercutting it with uh, Somerset as well. 
So he's kind of like mm. more deadpan and more relaxed, kind of like throws off the tempo of the rhythm of the edit of it. So it becomes this kind of really uncomfortable chase sequence, this really oppressive chase sequence with the score on it. But it's it's one it's the sequence that most, I think, effectively to me communicates the idea of the city as basically an urban hellscape, as this kind of like nightmare space, as this place where like buildings kind of collapse into one another, where, you know, like the space between where you live and where somebody else lives and apparently an old abandoned theater for some reason and a dumpster truck are all like within, you know, 20, 30 feet of one another, depending on how you move through it. Um, mm. it's, it's, it's a staggering sequence. It's, it's one of it's my favorite sequences of the film because it's one of the most unsettling and uncanny. And I think most like a horror movie because you have even Doe yeah. in that sequence with the fedora and the trench coat, which is something from film noir. But when he's like jumping off balconies, he looks like he's a superhero or something. He looks like he's a monster. He does like, with the coat. Yeah, with the coat sort of... With the coat flying behind him. That's it exactly, yeah. yeah. It kind of has that kind of effect. Um, what I was going to say is I love that sequence as well because, and this is coming back to a point that Bernice was making earlier about how uh, Doe in this film acts like the Joker in the Dark Knight as an agent of chaos. Anywhere that... Doe goes in that sequence or anything he touches like it just automatically goes to hell like it's in that like once he starts firing at the detectives the camera suddenly turns to handheld um like once he gets out on the street and he's just running away like he's out in the middle of traffic cars are swerving and crashing and trying to keep out of his way he's just spreading um pure chaos and anarchy no matter where he goes Uh, and then of course it all builds into that absolutely marvelous sequence in the laneway where it's one of those great sequences where if you're in a cinema you would be watching from behind your popcorn because you don't know where he is it's like the boogeyman you're waiting for him to pop out of course he's above mills the whole time and then you just to one of my favorite single moments in the film when he's when mills has uh he's twonked mills over the head with the crowbar and he has the gun at his head it's the tension it's palpable it's magnificent and And that wonderful shot as well that wonderful shot of him holding the gun yes no face just blurred like you just know if you're looking at a pure evil you can't identify it it's vaguely human but you know it's not good magnificent i found the interrogation scene after lost like one one of the most upsetting um, uh, parts of the movie but it did the the interview with with um, the, the character who's played by Leland Orser, who is fantastic in these, so, in these so incredibly films. good in it. Um, mm. His energy in that it must have been uh, just. He crazy. kept himself up several nights beforehand. And before they would kind of shoot, he would go off and he would do work himself up into hyperventilating as well. well um, normally, that what? sort of stuff is just you're 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 kind of like cut cut that nonsense out, actors. But I feel I feel like this kind of earns it, you know. Oh, like I mean, for what that character did and went through, like you need something particularly particularly disturbing and I, I think that scene absolutely delivers and it's again it's a power to yeah even just for a small character and brief screen time but it's also for something that has this kind of violent dark bloody rep um seven is very much a master of uh show of uh of not showing too much yes, like it's it it's 
there, it never dwells on any violent acts. Like we only ever see the aftermaths of the violence very famously. We only ever see the, the victims. But in that scene in particular, like we never actually see the lust victim, but just from what he says, the way he says it, and that one photograph that Somerset fashioned of, of the device in question. Uh, like all the pieces are there. Like I say, I uh, I saw that I, I watched that film for once with um, some some female friends of mine, and like slot as you can imagine disturbed them as it disturbs anybody. But of course, they had a particularly queasy reaction to that particular scene as well. As it, it like the, I think that's there's Joe's kind of real power to to make to either do unfathomable things. Or to make other people do them for him. It is truly disturbing. Um, and very worth very quickly shouting out to Michael Massey, actually, in that sequence as well, because he is the proprietor of the Peep Booth. Um, great character actor, passed away in 2016, uh, like a ah. lot of uh, actors, unfortunately. But Massey, kind of, again, that sense of apathy, that sense of, you know, I didn't see anything. Why would I, why are you drawing me into this? Why yeah, am I and part it, of this? Why are you, which is, again, the core themes of the, the kind of movie as well. He gets one of the key lines, thematically speaking, when Mills asks him, you like what you do for a living, these things you see? No. Yeah. That's just life, isn't it? Yeah, and, and again, the idea that of using Massey in that role as well in 1995, where the previous year he'd been involved in the shooting of The Crow as well, where Brandon Lee had died. He was actually the man who fired the gun. Um, really? Yeah. Oh, wow, I did not Which know that. Layers that's, I th- well, at least maybe for me, maybe again, maybe I'm coming out with too much information, but that kind of layers the scene with a certain irony or a certain power um, for me, where it's like you have somebody who has been in a similar situation where he was not necessary he was he was involved in something horrific but not responsible for it if that makes sense mm. um no okay. yeah he didn't know yeah um sorry just uh, when we're on the subject of uh, actors a, a key part of the movie uh, i'd like to shout out to uh, michael reed mckay who plays uh victor the sloth victim uh he is somebody who uh, fincher describes him as having a cv when he came into audition of like zombie and this plague victim in that because he's only he was only about 95 to 100 pounds and fincher jokingly said to him if you can lose another 10 pounds you've got the part and he came on set and he lost six pounds and fin- fincher was actually kind of horrified that somebody would do that for him but um I mean, that's it pays off because that's got to be the scene that most everybody remembers and cites in the film, apart with the exception, perhaps, of the ending. But uh, yeah, um, with uh, and the actors weren't told the actor, the actors weren't told that it was an actor. They thought it was a mannequin. So when he roars to life, you get a lot of that reaction from John C. McGinley. Of like yeah, an so like first take reaction, but as as well as that, uh, John C. McGinley, when he's eating over him, he whispers, "What's uh, a key? Another key line? You got what you deserved." Um, and it's that idea that, you know, you're asked, why would John Doe do something like this? Because he figures nobody else will do it, even if it's what some people deserve, which is, again, just really, really dark to think about. But there we are. And very quickly, in terms of the murder victims, you will note that the lawyer wears pants uh, in his sequence because apparently Fincher had asked the actor to go nude and the actor said he would go nude if Fincher did. Um, so apparently <laughs> they, they reached on a settlement of like he would wear underpants. And also the um, the victim, the sex worker in The Lost Killing was actually the set dresser. Um, she remarked that apparently the, the casting director said that the, the actor who was supposed to play the role had dropped out at the last minute. Uh, but she was told that she had a body type that they felt could work in the role. Um, so she was she's... dressed to kill. <laughs> apparently, or to hey, die, oh. apparently. Oh. Um, 
but yeah so uh so yeah um and there's also like there's a cottage industry in interviewing the the murder victims from seven so we'll include some links in the show notes to that uh but is there anything else you want to talk about anything we haven't discussed already uh, i just like uh, a small thing but i oh sorry um nope Go on ahead. I feel like I'm dropping a lot of people tonight, but um, just I also like the irony of casting Shaft as an inefficient uh, l- member of law enforcement. Third build, third build is mm. what, what kind of, like third build is what really gets me there. He's ahead of Orly Ermy, um, and he appears in two scenes, it, three, two or three. You no, know, it's either two or three. It's not very much, but hey, it's Richard Roundtree. I'm not going to argue too much. Um, yeah. You don't think uh, that Orly well, Ermy got shafted in, in the credits? Uh, <laughs> Uh, listen, early, again, early army. We we remember him uh, from this, and everybody does because he's just he. Like we're saying about how the film's kind of weird sense of humor, he contributes quite a lot to that. Yeah. Like even this, his first scene when he's talking to uh, uh, Somerset and Mills, and he just kind of has to put Mills down like a like an angry dog. Sit. And um, turns to Somerset and says, "Sorry, old buddy. I guess you're cleaning up after the fat boy." It's a mm-hmm. charmer. Um, yeah, um, just uh, one thing I just read about an irony um, in the film uh, is it's it doesn't have anything to say about race necessarily, but in its soundtrack it has some interesting choices of black artists like uh, um, Theolonius Monk, Billie Holiday, things like that. And uh, their music appears in times of quiet and moments of calm, and their characters are really getting to grips with uh, what's going on. And I think they side with Somerset in uh, uh, extolling some of the real for, uh, the wisdom and virtues that are to be found in the film. Uh, one of my favorite one of my favorite scenes is uh, Glory Lynn singing "Speaking of Happiness" while um, Mills and Somerset discuss apathy at a bar after the Lust murder. And, um, to, to be fair, as as a kind of nineties American movie exploring urban unrest, maybe avoiding race was probably the smart thing to do. Probably, but I think it gets something in there. Like it, yeah. it's a very subtle thing, but if you want to read that into it, I think you can. Um, but anyway, sorry, Bernice. Um, anything else you want to talk about? Anything we haven't discussed already? Actually, no. I was just going to mention. I think the film does really interesting things with um, with disgust. <laughs> Uh, I remember really vividly watching it for the first time and being and the whole audience being really genuinely shocked by, you know, the double whammy of the opening sequence where, where you get the, the first of all, it's, it's a bit like the Sands of the Lambs in that it was quite rare at that time for films to show corpses in close up and in, in considerable sort of anatomical detail. And you had mm. things like the bucket of vomit um, and you had autopsies and, and, you know, you have the... you. It's a, and you know the the victim who's tied to the bed, of course. So you have quite a few scenes in the film that are are directly about evoking disgust and revulsion in the viewer. And I think in an interesting way, it ties in with John Doe, whereby he's perpetually disgusted by the world around him in a very visceral kind of way. And it's almost as if he's trying to project that onto the world at large, onto his victims. I, I do. I think there's something inter- like this is a film I wouldn't want to see in Smellovision. You know, it's um. <laughs> so I, th- I think Scratch it's quite. It is part of the tapestry of the film, I think, is that there's a there are a lot of moments where characters very early on are, are visibly recoiling in horror uh, from the smells that they're experiencing, never mind the sights that they're seeing. So I think it's very clever in that sense as well. Yeah. And mm-hmm. it ties into what Phil was saying about how careful it is about what it shows you, because uh, it doesn't Absolute. actually show you that much. Um, it more has you it relies on reaction shots from characters. Like again, that lust sequence where you it's almost left to the imagination what has happened, except 
it's then oh, described really? to you and it's some yeah and it's somehow worse hearing it described to you and seeing an image of the object than it is to yeah. actually kind of you it's could imagine your a head. cruder version of this film where that scene was made a lot more of and was actually depicted yeah. happening um whereas it, that isn't this film's about the aftermath of the of the crime in a way i think that about wraps it up then um so Thank you very much for joining us. Um, at the end of each podcast, we ask our guests to recommend something that they're enjoying for listeners. So it is Halloween evening, so if you want to recommend something spooky, go for it. Now, to give Phil and Bernice a chance to think about this, I'm going to ask Andrew to go first. Um, I'm afraid I don't have anything spooky, and um, it might <laughs> Well, Halloween's be... almost over anyway. Um... <laughs> well, it, it, it's, um, it might be a controversial choice, because I know it's kind of divided... Um, opinions and I have my own kind of problems with it but I really really liked um, Tennis and I imagine it's still out in, uh, in cinema um, I love that. I, I love that Andrew and Phil seem to be destined to pit myself and Bernice against each other on this. It's like whatever we can do to stir this pot. Yeah, no, I, I, I admire um, Nolan's kind of um, like the, the his kind of ability or his courage to kind of be able to make movies like that. Like obviously the Warner brothers love him and they kind of back their directors, but it's, um, I was really impressed with the, with the big ideas in it. Like there's, there's, there's an extent um, to which some of it has been done in, in places before, but um, the, the more kind of basic philosophical, idea i think of the movie was to just kind of to think differently about the world and to realize that we see the, the world the way we do because of us not because of the way the world is that we kind of like have these categories for understanding things and i th- think that the, the the movie is maybe quite intentionally opaque in a very kind of interesting way that rewards um re-watching now I would I would I will say that the emotional um, kind of motivations of the movie don't really uh, do much. I I think Elizabeth Debicki plays her role very good in The Night Manager, um, and, um, and and that and and that's that this is kind of a a bad sort of attempt at. Um, kind of recasting that same that same character um which is disappointing because i think um nolan had kind of come some way to having movies that were a little less cold or exploring like i thought dunkirk was very affecting for Mm. example um so i i i it's kind of a step backwards in that sense and i don't think it's his greatest movie but but it's um it is incredible, and I've really been enjoying the Travis Scott um, uh, song, The Plan. Uh, here, here, loving that. <laughs> um, I, I know you didn't expect that, did you, Darren? Um, I, I, this isn't the Tenet podcast, but I will say that I am going to see it again. I've only seen it once, um, I, and I'm sure it'll appreciate, because, but it has to, because I've seen it once, and I can't make head or tail of it. I've got n- I saw every frame, and I have no idea what it was. Not a clue. But I can't wait to see if I can figure it out. Um, sorry, I'm interjecting. Um, no, no worries. I will. I will second that recommendation. But I'm sure that is absolutely not a surprise to anybody familiar with my fondness <laughs> for that director in question. Stop the presses, Darren enjoyed a Christopher Nolan movie. Hold on, right there. 
Um, buy but the in terms book. of <laughs> yeah, buy the book, buy my book, he says, holding it up to the camera. Um, but no, in terms of of other uh, recommendations, um, obviously uh, a lot of the films of David Fincher actually are probably really good. If you haven't watched uh, Seven, you might not have seen them. So films like Gone Girl, um, and even I think uh, Bernice mentioned it, Panic Room, which is one of those great examples of a director just doing a genre or style piece. Um, in that vein, I also like, and again, apologies for the Nolan reference, Nolan doing Insomnia, but things like, say, Spike Lee doing Inside Man, movies which are largely just an excuse for directors to kind of have a bit of fun with the material without any expectations of kind of, you know, this being an important work in their filmography. So I'd recommend both of those as well. Um, and in terms of 90 serial killer movies, I remember quite liking Kiss the Girls, although I haven't seen it in like two decades. So I'm cautious about recommending that and seeing how it holds up. Um, but also the first season of True Detective as well, which owes quite a lot, I think, to Seven in terms of style, tone and theme as well. Uh, but Phil, what would you recommend for listeners? Um, I was trying to think of something that just reminded me of Seven. So I was looking for something that had the same kind of similar transgressive streak to it, if not more so. Um, and I landed on, uh, as you might expect, David Cronenberg. Um, I'd recommend Crash to people if they like Seven. Ooh. It's a film. Another that, late 90s kind of, yeah, urban. Yeah, it, this is the year after. And it deals with the same kind of uh, a look at... Uh, people exploring um, kind of desires to do things that probably shouldn't be going about doing it this way. Like, you know, we're talking about people who get sexual gratification from car crashes. It is, it's an adaptation of the J.G. Ballard novel and it is as, like, it's not as graphic as you might think, but of course a lot of people did think it was and that caused quite a furore when it came out as well. But it does have that same sense of, uh, illicitness married to uh, a directorial polish and confidence um, that is very much in seven like Cronenberg at the peak of his powers it's it's disturbing it's beautifully made and brilliantly acted and it's uh, just been announced uh, as new additions to Criterion Collection so uh, Crash oh, yeah. oh, so if you want a Crash course in Cronenberg that's the place oh, to go Christ. and Bernice <laughs> what would you recommend <laughs> sorry I'm still recovering from that impact of that last joke um... <laughs> sorry I was hoping it would fly over everybody's head but uh, um, yeah, I have a no, dangerous uh, method uh... <laughs> I would recommend if people are looking for uh, to keep their eye out for there's obviously not that much new horror uh, unless it's VOD emerging at the moment. But I would recommend that people keep an eye out for a new film. Uh, I believe it's Australian. Uh, it's called Relic and it's a really mm-hmm. top notch one of those um, emotionally devastating uh, horror films. That's a metaphor for other things. Um, and it's it, in a nutshell, it's, it's a film that kind of is about an, an old woman who, ha- who appears to have dementia and her daughter and her granddaughter come to look after her and spooky things happen. It For me, it wasn't quite as good as perhaps, it's quite like a film like The Babadook, but it's yeah. it's pretty, it's re, it's re it's got a really stunning um, uh, final 20 minutes or so and it's got really good heartfelt performances. I really liked it and Finally, I would recommend if you're looking for urban malaise uh, uh, from the decade of urban malaise, which was uh, uh, America in the late 1970s, I'd really recommend the 1978 version of Invasion of the Body Snatchers directed by Philip Kaufman. It is superb. A lot of what yeah. Seven does, this film kind of does, and that's a film where even when films are, even when scenes are taking place um, or in the foreground, it doesn't seem like anything particularly spooky is happening. There's always something in the background not quite right going on. 
and it may shock you to learn it's an alien invasion um, <laughs> if you didn't know already but it's just it is incredible and it must be one of the greatest I mean remakes slash sequels whatever you want to call it ever made it's just and the ending will leave you completely devastated because you truly care about the people involved with it it's got Donald yep. Sutherland with a perm I mean what else do I need to say it's just and, it's brilliant. and Leonard Nimoy don't forget and Leonard, Leonard Nimoy. Nimoy who I mean actually a brilliant role from Leonard Nimoy yep. Dr. David mm-hmm. Kipner um, so highly recommended. And Brooke Adams is in it, who kind of got forgotten about after the 70s, but she's really good in it as well. So, and Veronica yeah. Cartwright, too. Oh, and she's she's such a good character. And why do they, why do we think they always will come in metal ships, she says, mm-hmm. about the aliens. Uh-huh. I don't know she is. Also, is, yeah. is Relic the one with uh, Emily Mortimer in it? It is, indeed. It is, yeah. yeah. Sorry, I was I think Bella, Bella Heathcote, Heathcote is in Bella it as well. is the granddaughter yeah, Sam, really think, good yeah. performances and, and a very believable family dynamic between the three of them so um, yeah it's really oh. good Relic yeah, I would second both of those recommendations. Uh, Relic is is one of the one of the highlights of the year for me. Actually, I think you're right. It's maybe not quite as good as the Babadook, or even say, I think it's a little bit. I I didn't like Hereditary that much, so I think it's it's kind of better than Hereditary, but it's in that kind of mold. Thank I you. I thought okay. I was the only one. <laughs> uh, there are there are there are literally two of us, Phil. It's fantastic. Uh, but thank you very much for joining us. So, if people are looking for a bit yeah. more Bernice, where can we find you online? Um, uh, under uh, at Murph Gothic perfect um and phil you are not online and andrew you are not online so it's just the podcast it's at the 250 you can find me personally at darren underscore mooney uh we'll be back next week where we'll be jumping back into scorsese season we're doing a special clip show episode um so it'll be i am appearing on the movie palace talking about the aviator but don't worry jay and andrew will also be appearing briefly to provide a framing sequence around that so thank you very much for joining us and we'll be back next week Before we do that, have a look at this special edition of the game that came out. Isn't it gorgeous? Ooh, I need to read one of the book. Full hard, full hardback book. This is the um, um, what's gonna call this? Uh, Michael Douglas. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And Sean Penn. Um, this is. And you've you've all seen the movie, right? I have not. I've I've, I've seen a trailer for it though, and it looks really good. I got my invite. Amazing, isn't it? Though. Oh, you got your invite. You got your invite. That's. Um, but yeah, it's very much like Panic Room. It reminds me a lot of Panic Room where it's Fincher just doing a genre piece and having fun with it. Um, I wish more directors would do that, to be honest. It's very playful, Phil. Uh, ironically enough. Appropriately enough for the game. I think that's all she was going for. Going for. <laughs> all right, then. All right. Um, Andrew, so if you want to cue us in for the spoiler zone. Oh, sorry. I just going to use food into my mouth. <laughs> I was really just trying to give Andrew an opportunity to eat. That's what that was. Unless, unless Andrew's breathing past the sauce. Um, <laughs> yes.